Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Over the course of the 19th century, the rapid industrialization of Europe and the delicate stability of the world's geopolitical situation led to a revolution in naval technology. Iron and steel production led to armor for ships, while precision machining led to explosive shells being hurled over a mile and self-correcting torpedoes breaching hulls beneath the surface. And while the British Navy ruled the sea at both the beginning and the end of the century, the ships they did so with were completely different. Supremacy at sea meant supremacy overall, and as new nations like Italy and Germany struggled to find footing against old powers, they turned to fleets as markers of their success. So what impact did all of these changes have on naval warfare, and how did they impact Britain's place in the world? Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. Hello. It's been a while. I'm glad to have you back. I'm really glad to be back. It's 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 been some time, and I always enjoy being here. Oh, that's that's very kind of you to say. I enjoy having you here every single time. Uh, today we are going to be talking about. Uh, I've titled it the naval arms race. I want to be very specific that when I say that, I'm talking about the German and British naval arms race leading up to World War One. But I also want to be very specific that I'm not actually going to spend a lot of time on that topic today, because the naval arms race itself. It's not that interesting. Uh, basically, what's going to happen is each of those two companies, uh, each of those two countries, are going to take turns passing bills, spending more money on their navy. That's it. That's the that's the long and short of it. Well, it was a uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> but the circumstances leading up to this kind of uh, economic duel more than than military duel are really interesting to me. In fact, this is one of my uh, favorite topics personally uh, in university. I took, oh, I don't know, probably three or four courses specifically on various aspects of naval history. Like this is my, this is probably like my most old guy tendency interest. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I feel like deep down, most people have some sort of fascination with some sort of big machine, whether it's a hundred percent, whether it's ships, whether it's trains, uh, farm equipment, like there's, there's, I don't know. There's something about those types of of things that, that speak to people. I don't live near an ocean. I've never sailed anything. I've driven a couple of boats that are like maybe 15 feet long. I know nothing about the call of the sea. And yet there is something so interesting to me about 
huge sailing ships. I don't know why, but I'm just going to lean into it. Let's let's chat about the ocean. Let's chat about ships. And um, and I'm really excited to dig into this one today. I, I I'm I'm vibrating. My biggest my biggest concern is that I'm going to be so distracted talking about all sorts of different things that I'm just going to completely fail to like stick to any sort of point uh, or communicate anything clearly. But we're going to do our best. I'd love to say I'm going to reel you in, but I'm probably going to make it worse. So let's just go for it. <laughs> I, I'm feeling I'm feeling good about just leaning into that tendency today. I really, really am. So the period that I want to focus on today is basically a hundred years long. I want to focus on the period between the Napoleonic Wars and the First World War. Not because interesting things don't happen outside of that; they absolutely do. But this is such a rapid period of change for naval technology, naval strategy, um, for some of the biggest players involved with uh, uh, with sea control that uh, it's it's really worth focusing in on, I think. And uh, I suppose what better place to start than uh, an old friend of yours and mine, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. I was going to say, this is like the sequel. This is kind of the sequel. It's got very little to do with France. France is going to come up, but like not that often. Um, but we do need to start there because we're going to focus almost exclusively on the Royal Navy, right? Britain, um, for very, very obvious reasons. Uh, the Royal Navy is the height of sea power for uh, like many centuries. It, it lasts a long time that they're in charge. Uh boatload of time uh, i suppose you can edit that out i know i'm mostly mad that i didn't come up with it first um <laughs> yeah and and the thing i find most fascinating about this period just to just to sort of kind of uh, put an umbrella on all of this is that there are a lot of parallels with what happens with great britain and naval power and a good chunk of the uh, arms race that happened uh, within the Cold War, right? Like there's there's some striking parallels here, right? We are going to see a power become effectively so large and so powerful that no one's willing to address them directly on their own terms. They're going to find other sort of workarounds to that form of power for so long that eventually that power hasn't actually met anyone in pitched battle in so long that most of their military tactics are theoretical rather than practical. Right. Does gotcha. this sound familiar to the 20th century? <laughs> Maybe a, a little, little bit. A little bit. Kind of topical. And like, obviously, this isn't predictive in any way. It's just one of those things that can be illustrative if you sort of eh, keep one eye on it as you go through it, right? So back to Napoleon. One of the things that we talked about very briefly when you and I talked about Napoleon is that uh, there was a pretty significant place in the war for the British Navy, but not necessarily in sort of pitched ship-to-ship -ship battles, right? There was a, a place mainly for economic blockade of the French, right? Cutting France off from its overseas territories, forcing them to... Um, basically manufacture arms and food and everything else needed for a war domestically. Gotcha. More of a, more of a boat wall. A blockade, but yes, a boat wall I'm works gonna go, too. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go with, with boat wall. Yeah. <laughs> boat wall, I like it. Um, Britain doesn't just 
get to a place where they can control the entire Atlantic against one of the strongest nations on Earth. Um, they'd really been intentionally building a powerful navy since essentially the late 18, or the late 16th century, right? You've probably heard of the Spanish Armada. Mm -hmm. It was uh, defeated by the British Navy under Sir Francis Drake in 1588. This was a massive tactical win for uh, England at the time. And yeah, okay, the weather played a significant part in it. So did really sneaky night raids by fire ships, which is basically when you take a rowboat, pack it with very flammable things, and push it in the direction of the uh, enemy ships. But... In the minds of the English population, the idea of having a strong English Navy as being vital to national security really takes root in this period, right? Britain is a, they're, they're an island nation. They need access to things outside of that island. They don't have everything there. And so if they don't have control over their own waters, they are strategically vulnerable so they need to maintain at the very least control over their own waters yeah 17th and 18th centuries see the royal navy really rise to prominence but more in like a role of a like a first among many rather than like the only force in the ocean which is where we're going to kind of end up you know the spanish have a very powerful navy the french have a powerful navy the dutch are extremely dominant at this period of time this is where you have you know dutch colonies in uh north america but you also have the the dutch dutch trading companies in the pacific right uh the rivals to the east india trading company there are a lot of nations fielding very powerful ships in this era and it's not necessarily a given either that the the, the royal navy is going to win every battle in the 17th and 18th century right like so look at the revolutionary war right the american revolution where I find that sometimes they're a little bit overstated, but there is a role played by French ships uh, denying um, British blockades to the colonies, right? And delaying delivery of troops to the colonies that um, by most uh, sort of analyses essentially cost the British the Battle of Yorktown, which is a, which is a pivotal battle in the revolution. And that's just the French stopping British ships from getting there in time, right? So when we talk about this, this period, what we would call the age of sail, this is where most of the stuff you would think of for like tall sailing ships, this is where most of those innovations uh, come up, right? So, so technology wise, I've got like an image in my head of these boats mm -hmm. and I'm not going to lie. It's, it's mostly Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Is that, is that, is that more or less accurate? That is, that is exactly accurate. The, the ships that you're thinking of there are uh, sort of early 18th century, uh, maybe even late 17th century kind of thing. So, so like early 1700s, right? And yeah, we're talking about a uh, fairly large sailing ship, uh, two, sometimes three masts. Uh, later, you get the more masts you're likely going to have. You're going to have two, three decks usually. Um, you're going to have, oh, any number of cannons. It was, it was pretty common. By the time you get to the, you know, the turn of the 19th century, so the, the Napoleonic Wars, it was pretty common to field a 74-gun uh, ships, um, but you would also have uh, larger ships that could uh, carry up to 130, 140 guns. 
and crews that are that are yeah. bigger than you would expect. Like if you're if you're yeah. if you're carrying 140 guns, you're looking at a crew of probably 800. Jeez. Yeah, they're they're very labor intensive ventures. And yeah, the Royal Navy is like the, you know, they're wearing the powdered wigs and the the brass buttons, right? Like this is Yep. I mean, would Pirates of the Caribbean have been my first go-to? Probably not. Does it work? Absolutely. Absolutely <laughs> it does. No, no, that's okay. There are just there's just better sailing movies out there. That's uh, all. Yeah, no, totally. I, I went straight for uh, uh, what, what was going to be popular. What's, what's like a really good, more accurate sailing movie? Oh, that's the easiest question anyone's asked me on this show. Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World. There you go. Uh, okay. It is. It is. Uh, it's a good movie. I enjoy the movie, but also it is one of the most historically accurate movies I've I've ever seen. Um, I can think of about. I've I've looked before. I, I can think of about two valid criticisms of that movie of, across the entire runtime, um, which is not bad uh, for a Hollywood movie. Solid. Also a good time. If you've never seen it, check it out. I, I, I highly recommend it. We get to the Napoleonic Wars. Yes, there are a number of powers. Some of them have been in decline for a little while. But what Napoleon did to Europe was really consolidate a lot of these powers. And some of the distinctiveness, and, and we would have talked about this, sort of disappears in this era, right? Like you have, like for example, like the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire, right? turning it into the Austrian Empire when uh, when all these uh, German armies are defeated at Austerlitz. Is it the end of German distinction? No. Does it pave the way towards German unification later in the in the century? Yeah, kind of, because they've they've sort of knocked things down a little bit and there's a new way to build things back up, right? When it comes to the ocean, it's not as though France didn't have a navy. It's that Britain had developed something that was known as um, a doctrine of concentration. So the best way I can think of to uh, describe this is, okay, imagine that you are getting in a fight. There's you and four friends. So there's five of you, right? And you're getting in a fight with five other people. Okay. The sort of more traditional way to approach this would be all right each person takes one other person the doctrine of concentration would suggest let's all five jump one of them on the other side knock them out as quickly as possible and then we have less guys to deal with that makes sense yeah yeah it it, it does and and so what the what the british ship has or what the british fleet has been doing is concentrating on the most not even necessarily most vulnerable places but the most tactically sensitive places along the french coast in uh, an attempt to keep french ships in port as much as possible so by the time you get kind of into the mid game of the of the napoleonic wars uh 1804 1805 you really only have uh, the, the the bulk of the French fleet concentrated in two places. So uh, one is down on uh, the coast of Spain, who they were allied with uh, at a port called uh, Cadiz, and another one up north in uh, Brittany. And they couldn't get these two fleets together to mass them, right? Like they'd been split by these British tactics. And even though they probably, like the French probably had more 
um, ships that they could field because the British fleet is sticking all together. They're concentrating at all given times. You would need the entire French fleet to take on the entire British fleet in order to win. And British fleets weren't letting them out of the ports. So if the British fleet is got this tactic where they kind of group up and 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 gang up on a on a single target, doesn't that leave, you know, lots of areas of their coast undefended? Sure, but the only way to attack Britain in this in this scenario is to leave one of your major ports undefended. Right, okay. This is we are we are very early to this term, but it's something that I, I we would be addressing eventually anyway, so let's get it out of the way. There is a concept in naval war known as the fleet in being. And this is something that's going to become more important towards First World War, but it's a concept that's been around since the the 17th century basically. The idea of a fleet in being is Imagine a situation where you have zero ships and your enemy has, I don't know, let's say 10 uh, sitting right outside your harbor. It doesn't necessarily on the face of it make sense to build, say, five ships in that harbor knowing that it's already blockaded, right? Because what are you going to do with them? Yeah, they're probably going to get blown to bits just as soon as they leave the port. As soon as they leave the port, but they are safe in harbor. And that's going to be mm-hmm. true for, oh, up until about 1904 or so. Um <laughs> <laughs> bit of foreshadowing there for, for most of history though a fleet is most safe in harbor you can have um uh land defenses of a harbor that can attack a ship that would be much I safer see. that would be much safer out at sea plus the, the the fleet in harbor is protected from weather uh things like that right so it is really the safest place for a a, a fleet to be so at this point the guns on land are uh outranging any gun that could be on a ship yeah, sort of just by default. Um, keep in mind that you need a, a muzzle-loading uh, gun in this era, right? Metallurgy just hasn't gotten anywhere. So um, the bigger the gun and the longer the gun, the farther it can fire and the more accurately it can fire, right? But you have to load the muzzle. So the the size of a gun on a ship is restricted by the size of a gun that you can retract into the ship to reload it at the muzzle. Okay. Uh, a cannon on land can be bigger because you can walk to the front, right? Uh, you can't hang off the side of a ship to like jam a cannonball in there. Not with that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, the guns are the guns are bigger. They're also um, on land, which I, this this is one of those things that like I, I you maybe don't think about too much, but like trying to fire a cannon from. A, a boat that is both moving and pitching up and down on waves is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, most, most ship battles are conducted at point blank range, right? Like you sail in so that when you fire the gun, there's literally no else, nowhere else for the cannonballs to go. Um, no one is there. There are no, there are no cannon snipers, right? Like you just, it's not possible. The tolerances are too bad. The, the number of variables involved are too bad. So uh, a, an experienced artillery crew on land um, is going to have the advantage against a ship on the water every single time. Sure. Yep, that makes sense. So um, back to a fleet in being. So why would we bother building this smaller fleet inside a harbor that we know we can't get out of, right? Right. Well, 
what if we did it? What if we did that same thing at two different fleets or at two different harbors, right? Those 10 ships are now split between two different harbors if they want to protect both, right? And um, they can't leave, they can't all leave the one where you, you know, the first port where you built your first five because then they'd be free to get out on the ocean and now they're dangerous, right? Now they have some control of the sea. So simply by having a fleet, you can defensively lock down the movements of your enemy's fleet by requiring them to guard you. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. What yeah. what that means is that same fleet can't be off for example attacking merchant vessels that are you know crucial to uh your trade to your survival. It can't be off bombarding another city for example. It has to sit there and guard you, not necessarily because you're able to beat it with your fleet, but because the mere existence of your fleet is such a threat that they can't afford not to sit there, right? So just the existence of your fleet locks down the enemy's fleet. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's 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 a tactical, like it's a very tactical thing, right? Like this isn't, this isn't the like two ships pull up beside each other and start hammering each other with, with cannon fire. This is a very boring. This is the this is the mundane of of naval warfare, but it's it's important, right? The British are annoyed about the French fleet. Napoleon is annoyed that his French fleet is locked down. Everybody's mad about this whole thing, right? And so the word comes down from uh, from Napoleon that he wants his his fleet, commanded by uh, an admiral Pierre Charles Villeneuve to basically break out of the Mediterranean, right? And uh, get some control of the ocean. It's not tactically critical, but like it is embarrassing. <laughs> and it wouldn't hurt to have sea control either. So Villeneuve is terrified of the British. He doesn't want to fight them. And he's actually not maybe the best commander necessarily. Um, but the problem with having a French Revolution right before the Napoleonic Wars is that much of the uh, most or many of the most competent admirals have either been executed or have resigned. So this is what they're left with. <laughs> now, the reason the Royal Navy is somewhat maybe more feared than they uh, than the number of ships we're talking about might suggest is that the Royal Navy in this era has a policy of um, at least more than most uh, promoting based on merit. You don't just walk into a command usually. I mean, there's obviously exceptions. Your status in, in society might grant you your starting place on the ladder. So, you know, having a good family and lots of money will start you as an ensign rather than a, a you know, a junior seaman but um you know put you on the officer class or officer track but that's about it and you serve as an ensign until you deserve to move up okay so no one's getting uh uh to be captains or 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 even admirals based on uh purely being like a noble right you basically have to be royalty for that to happen right. uh, essentially so you yeah. know and and this is in contrast to the british army at the time where purchasing commissions is just standard like that's just how everything's done honestly it's 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 interesting because napoleon's army was actually fairly merit-based um it's just at sea they were lacking competent experience 
um, the fact that the British army was as successful against the uh, the French uh, is arguably because they had the good luck of one of their nobles in in Wellington uh, being a competent military commander than it is necessarily of like a solid structure that moved quality upwards. Right. But at sea, it's different. At sea, you can't like these boats are difficult to handle, right? Like these, Mm -hmm. these ships are so temperamental that you can't, you can't just hand anybody command of a ship of the line and expect it to go well. And they're very expensive. Like there's a lot on the line here. So you need quality, talented people. Expensive. Are we talking here? I'm sure there's a, there's a, a then dollars and a today dollars kind of a, Goodness. Estimate. Uh, how much would a ship of the line be at the time of the Napoleonic Wars? That sounds like something I'm going to have to put in the notes. It's 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 a substantial sum, though. They are they are quite expensive. So, um, well, let's let's use this as a benchmark, though. For um, for this battle that we're coming up to, which is the Battle of Trafalgar, we're talking about the bulk of the British fleet being uh, 33 ships of the line which probably isn't as many as you were imagining in your head when you thought of something as consequential as the Battle of Trafalgar. Hmm. 33 isn't a small number of ships. Yeah, I was going to say, if I saw 33 ships out there on the water, I'd probably think that was a lot of ships. But that's basically the entire British Navy at this point in time. Right. It's not all of them, but it's, it's a lot of them. So this is uh, commanded by Lord Horatio Nelson, and he's been tasked with uh, shutting down the British Navy or the the French Navy. Sorry. And uh, sorry, I misspoke. It's the French that have 33 ships. He actually only has 27. And what's more, the French ships are bigger. They're the biggest in the world. Um, There are more men on board. So we're talking, you know, when this battle uh, takes place in 1805, the British have 20,000 men on those 27 ships. The French on 33 have 35,000 men. So slightly more ships, 15,000 more people. The way battles work at this point in time is what's known as the line of battle. The idea is when you put cannons on a ship, they point out to the sides, right? Yeah. You don't have a whole bunch of them pointing off to the front. They basically have to go straight out. Um, So... You can't sail directly at somebody and expect to do any damage. You have to sail past someone, right? And so they found that the most effective way of making this happen, because again, at long ranges, it's hard to actually hit anything, is basically do the same thing that they did with musket fire, except at sea. And so the line of battle was literally a line of ships. You would get all of your ships sailing in a single line. The head of the fleet, so um, the the flag admiral, or the uh, sorry, it would just be the admiral on the flagship, uh, would be in the middle. And the reason it's called a flagship is they would actually use they would they would raise flags um, that were coded for uh, maneuver uh, orders to the other ships. Gotcha. And in the middle, they can best be seen by those ahead and those behind. That's right. So it kind of ripple effects out all of them. Then you would have a vice admiral at the uh, front of the ship that would be uh, given some latitude. um, And you would have a rear admiral at the back. 
which was often the uh, the most vulnerable point. So they would uh, they would also be uh, given uh, quite a bit of latitude. But any ships in between would be almost entirely following orders for the most part. So Nelson knows that he has less ships. He also knows that uh, he has less men. But he was a relatively... I was going to use the word reckless commander, and that's not quite right because, like, he he was um, he took very calculated risks. So he was he was he was playing uh, with big money. So what he what he decided to do for this battle because he had a he had a bit of an idea of what was going to go down. He had been chasing this French fleet for a while. He knew that Villeneuve would be sailing in a standard line of battle. He also knew that the French commanders under him were even less experienced. So he went, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and split the fleet off because if the flagship is, uh, is occupied and is unable to give commands, then the rest of the fleet is not going to respond in like a measured way. So this is um, using some kind of tactic to split off the French fleet by somehow getting at the ship that's in the middle? That's right. So what he does is he splits his fleet into two lines of battle rather than one. And normally what you would try and do is kind of the British tactics were generally get upwind of people because you wanted to chase people. They generally had better control of the sea. Um, French uh, tactics generally wanted to be downwind of other ships. The idea being cripple their sails and then sail away as quickly as possible because you don't want to like sail by somebody when you're running away. Um, so he knew you'd be upwind and normally you would sail until you thought you were within range and turn all of your ships. So they all turned into a single line. It was a very slow, very clumsy maneuver. Uh, but when it worked properly, you would have a whole bunch of ships sailing directly at you. And then all at the same time, like skidding your bike to a halt, they would turn to one side and then beginning, begin firing at you in a single unbroken line, right? What Nelson decided to do was split his into two lines and say, we're not going to stop. We're going to drive these two lines directly through the French fleet. Okay, so French fleet is uh, sailing in a line. Yep. They're all going to turn at the same time and form a line kind of going sideways so they can fire their cannons. Meanwhile, the Brits are going to come in two lines and they're just not going to stop. They're not going to stop. They're not going to stop until their two lines have sailed into the French fleet, cutting the French fleet into three pieces. Aren't they um, sailing into cannon fire? They are. They're incredibly vulnerable. In fact, this is the one thing you never want to do in a naval engagement, which is called having your T crossed right? You don't want to be sailing directly into a broadside, which is what it's called when they're launching all of their cannons at you at once. You're taking no fire and, uh, or sorry, you're taking all the fire and you cannot fire back. That's right. The calculation here is, look, British ships are faster. Also, French gunners are really bad (laughs) and we're going to be upwind. So basically his calculation is they're not going to be able to hit us all that much until we are right among them. He also knew that Brit, uh, the British ships contain better hand-to-hand fighters. 
So the plan is sail into it. Yes, it's going to be rough. There's actually really low wind the day of the Battle of Trafalgar. So this was all a really slow, like agonizingly slow process, right? Sail in in two lines. Just don't stop. Keep going until your line is sailing and until both lines are sailing through the French fleet. Ideally, the one that is um, towards the front of the French fleet is going to cut off right before the flagship. Okay, so that the entire front third of the French fleet has to keep going and figure out what to do to turn back around. Interesting. Okay, are the British ships in their two lines trying to like ram? No, the the French ships are they trying to go in between them? No, ramming is not really a thing at this point in naval combat. I, I don't know. Every once in a while, people get enamored with ramming again. In like the eighteen seventies or eighties, they decided that like underwater rams were like the future of naval combat but uh it's not it, it, ramming is is a pretty poor tactic especially when you get into better hulls no it, it just mostly like wrecks both ships so no it's it's to sail in between there's always going to be spaces in between and then as they're sailing in between each line of ships fires in both directions okay so right okay. you're hitting you're hitting the front of french ships on one side and the backs of French ships on the other. So the entire French front third of the French ships are all going to be sailing away, taking cannon fire into their backs and not getting any signals from the flagship. So you've effectively, if you've done this right, nullified about 10 French ships. That loses the numerical advantage. The next stage is he's given his captains basically free discretion to do what they want uh, after they get past this point, because his reasoning is all hell's going to break loose anyways. There's no point in planning beyond this point. He tells them basically, as long as you're firing at a French ship, you can do no wrong. And these are captains who are better trained, more experienced, better instincts. Mm -hmm. He trusts them to uh, to do that. That's right. Yeah, he's a he's a remarkably inspiring figure. Um, and so, stage one, sail through, blow up a whole bunch of French ships. It's a good time. Stage two, spin around and each ship try to take on a French ship with at least at least one other British ship. Keep in mind, you've already got that first third of the French fleet continuing on, right? So they're kind of out of the picture. It's going to be a while before they turn around. That's not a fast thing that you can do, right? You don't just spin right. a, a, a sailing ship around. So yeah. we don't have to worry about them for too long. Meantime, disable as many French ships as possible. So at that point, it turns to essentially point blank, sometimes hand-to-hand -hand fighting. They're crossing onto other ships, like pirate style. Uh, they are they're, uh, nullifying as many of these ships as possible. Uh, at this point, uh, Nelson is actually killed by um, French musket fire. Um, a sniper got him out of a, uh, you know, he was, he was up on the mast. He doesn't die for a couple hours. He finds out that he won the battle before he before he dies. Um, but yeah, that's that's how Nelson went out. Not not you know down with a ship or something like that. He, he was just caught by a musket ball. <laughs> Look, we could go through this whole battle. Essentially, what you need to know is of the thirty three French ships that uh, that met at the Battle of Trafalgar, uh, only eleven of them got back to port at Cadiz. Uh, only five of them still seaworthy. The rest were either immediately or eventually captured by the British and added to their fleet. Oh, that's pretty thorough. How many ships did the British lose? None. 
None. Jeez, <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's pretty solid. Yeah, there's a reason people are all about the Battle of Trafalgar. It was a decisive victory. The last thing I want you to know uh, about the Battle of Trafalgar is that this is not how naval warfare is done. Naval historians are very interested in this kind of thing, myself included, because of the rarity of it. Most ships' duels are pretty brief, and most end with both sides breaking away. Occasionally, you get one, two, three, four ship skirmishes where uh, ships are captured. Um, but like, this is not this is not how they go, and that's why we get fascinated with it, right? Napoleon's never really able to rebuild uh, uh, any navy before uh, his defeat in 1815. And functionally, this battle on its own, like not really, but sort of, is the beginning of British dominance in the 19th century. This begins what's known as Pax Britannica, right? A hundred years of uh, peace on the oceans under the watchful eye of the British. Okay. It's, It's funny because there's this idea in this time that sea power is your ability to um it's what they call project power so it's your ability to not only send diplomatic envoys and ask you know make demands but also back up those demands with real firepower right it's the ability to go and hold a fleet uh, hold a harbor hostage to block uh, economic trade um it's the way that you can exert will much more easily than you can with a land army and much more quickly than you can with a land army. It's also asymmetrical in a way that an army is not, right? Like if you're fielding an army, it doesn't really matter how big it is. You're going to take substantial losses, uh, almost certainly. You can plausibly sail a 140-gun ship of the line into a harbor and cow a city into submission without taking a single casualty. This is the super weapon of the 19th century. And Britain just put itself in a place where it had most of them. Post-Napoleonic War, what you really see with the Royal Navy is um, a priority of maintaining, improving uh, basically all aspects of the Navy. So it wants to always have the most ships on the ocean, but also, you know, better training for its crews, larger ships, more guns, uh, better health of the crews. So, you know, uh, like better living conditions, um, you know, the, the introduction of canned foods in the early 19th century. Um, so better nutrition for their sailors, which in turn leads to better performance, right? Less scurvy. Uh, you know, scurvy is, is less of a concern at this point because you're less likely to have people at, at sea for eight, nine months. But yeah, like functionally, you're, you're on the right track. Um, speaking of, do you know what, do you know what grog is? Are you are you familiar at all with with what grog is? Man, um, I feel like grog is uh, is an alcoholic beverage potentially, but that's about as far as I as I can as I can say. Sure, yeah. So I mean, to keep sailors happy, they like to give them alcohol. Uh, it's you know, long time on some of these ships. It's hard work. They need to unwind once in a while. So you get into this situation where you're on long voyages where. Your biggest danger to health is not necessarily fresh food. It's not necessarily even scurvy. Uh, It's fresh water, right? Mm. When you're on the ocean. And uh, the trouble with storing huge casks of fresh water is that usually when they're in 
wooden barrels, uh, they start to get kind of scummy. Hmm. So what they did to, uh, I don't know, make it less full of bacteria, I suppose, is they started mixing the water basically at a four to one ratio with rum uh, <laughs> so that the sailors got their daily uh, dole. Um, they got fresh water as part of it. The water stayed fresher longer. Um, they also, you know, the, the rum would stay good as long as it wasn't mixed with the water. So you could continually improve the water that you had on hand. Um, and then, yeah, the, around this time, they actually started adding uh, lemon juice or even sometimes lime juice. Uh, it, apocryphally, people will say that it's to help with the scurvy. That's what got me onto this topic. Um, really, it's because it helped it taste better because it was not a good... Like, you're talking about, like, rancid water and and probably very bad rum. Um, yeah. So anything to flavor it up a little bit, I suppose, helps. But yeah, you would get, uh, you get two rations of grog a day as a sailor in the in the royal navy for a very long time uh if it was a special occasion other people would give you their rations um if you were being punished for something you might get sixes which is a a uh, six to one ratio of water to to rum they wouldn't cut you off completely but they just give you (laughs) worse versions grog grog is a fascinating uh a fascinating phenomenon if you had to guess when would you say that the grog was discontinued by the royal navy Ooh, oh, geez. I'm going to guess, based off that question, that it's quite recent. Take um, a crack. Let's hear it. 1940-something, World War II era. 1970. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which is basically people going, um, they have nuclear weapons. Should they be drinking on the job? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I mean, you're getting into great. highly technical equipment at that point you can't just be a couple of drinks around a day uh anyways i mean it, it sounds like they needed to be uh on their game to some degree i guess not everyone needed to be but a lot of but these jobs are pretty repetitive like it's it's a yeah. lot of redundancy and i look i'm just saying what do you think would be easier to do with a little bit of a buzz going uh <laughs> operate sophisticated electronic tracking equipment or like pulling on a rope really hard me personally well fair fair (laughs) fair 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 i I retract the question (laughs) this is the era in which the british uh uh, the british uh empire reaches its its largest size right we're talking about australia new zealand south africa canada the caribbean holdings are still in play uh, expansion into the Pacific Islands happens over the 19th century. Um, China in the 1830s and 1840s with the Opium Wars, uh, taking over direct control of India in the 1850s, uh, the scramble for Africa in the 1880s. Like this is this is the part of the British Empire where they talk about like a quarter of the world's landmass being under British control. The Royal Navy is what facilitates that. It's what allows them to hold all these places. And it's not just military. It's also trade. You don't have all of these colonies if you can't extract resources. It's also lines of communication. You can't govern these places if you can't get messages to these places, right? And in order to secure all of that stuff, you need a military power, a a naval military power capable of doing so. 
it also leads to a period of relative peace at sea because nobody can really touch the British. Every time someone starts developing a navy again, the British continue to build more ships or work on technological advances, right? So overall, the 19th century, and again, to like summarize before we get into specifics, the 19th century is this bizarre period for Britain on the sea because the result is a Royal Navy in 1900 that looks absolutely nothing like Nelson's, right? We're talking steel-hulled ships. We're talking, uh, you know, exploding shells. We're talking all of these technological advances that we would recognize as a relatively modern naval force in 1900. Okay. And what they did with it was basically the same, right? Project power, sail around, protect economic interests. But nobody really fought them in this period. And so what they were doing this with was very, very different, but they were doing it the same way. They were treating these 1890s battleships functionally the same way as they treated 1810 ship of the lines. And because all of this power projection involves implied or threatened violence rather than battle, they really didn't have a way of testing it out other than you know, sort of threatening vastly inferior forces who didn't engage them in battle. And I find that situation so interesting that you can get to a point where you're so superior that you have no way of testing out your own equipment in a reasonably helpful manner that you could be so behind tactically, strategically, and so far ahead technologically that you don't actually know what's going to happen if fighting breaks out. I mean, they may not know, but they were probably feeling pretty confident. But should they have been is the real question. Probably not. Uh, Sounds like they were hitting the gym, putting on a lot of show muscles. That's uh, oh, that is a great metaphor. Thank you. Thank you for that. (laughs) I like that a lot. Yeah, you're 100 percent right. That's exactly it. But their their fighting days were were way in the past. Yeah, a hundred percent. Wow, yeah. I like that a lot. Thank you. What I've put together is a list. I got so close, Colin. This irks me a lot. I got so close to a major naval innovation for every decade of the nineteenth century, and I missed one. I couldn't find a good one for one of the decades. But I want to go through a few of the things that came up over the nineteenth century to transform this. Uh, this navy, which was essentially the Pirates of the Caribbean Navy in the Napoleonic Wars into what you would think of as a modern uh, fighting force. Okay. Let's do it. So let's start with the 1810s. Uh, I have the steam engine. That's the first appearance of a steam engine as as being used to propel a ship. Um, Now, initially we're talking about like essentially paddle boats, you know, like Mississippi, like the huge wheel, paddle wheel boats. Right. Okay. And so... Like, it's going to be a bit before they're going on warships, but, like, it's in the air. It's coming. And why does this matter? Honestly, originally, steam engines, not that much faster than than sailing. Sailing is actually very, very efficient. You can get some pretty quick speeds going with a a properly rigged sailing ship. I think I think people really think of sailing as like, well, you go where the wind takes you and then like you're out of luck. And by this period, that's not true at all. You can use sort of a you, you can sail into the wind, not quite directly, but very close to it 
by sort of leveraging almost an aerofoil st- style uh, effect from crosswinds. You can go whatever direction you want. As long as there is some wind, you can move. But if the winds are dead, you're not going anywhere. It doesn't matter. That's the advantage of having a steam engine. I know that's obvious uh, to say now when, you know, there are no sailing ships of, you know, being used in a, in a naval uh, capacity. But that's, that's the advantage that everybody's looking at. You can't end up in dead seas. Right. So, yeah, the direction of the wind doesn't really matter. Just that there is wind at all. That's right. And so now you're not at the whims of the, of the weather, uh, hypothetically speaking. So you're also, and this is, a, this is another advantage, you're also much less vulnerable to losing propulsion through the destruction of masts. A very common tactic in battle was not to... Look, these, these ships are so big. And firing, say, like a 12-pound cannonball into the side of a wooden ship, it doesn't do a lot. Like mm. you're not going to sink it. If you fire, if you try and fire below the the waterline, cannonballs actually deflect off the water. They're going at such a high velocity that they bounce. So <laughs> really, yeah. And and to sink a sink, to sink a ship, you really want to hit it just below the waterline. Yeah, that's that's ideal. Um, you can't do it with cannons. So especially if you're fighting defensively, it's probably in your best interests to just aim at the sails, because um, it's going to slow down the ship and you can get away. You're not going to sink In it. In so much as you can aim at all. I guess that's just more of a fire when you're pointing up situation. Sure. Yeah, 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 definitely. But also um, think about the percentage of ship that is masts and sails versus actual hull. Uh, right. You have a better, sh- uh, a better chance of hitting it. Um, so, yeah, you're not going to lose your propulsion uh, due to uh, loss of sails. You've got propulsion in dead seas. Um, in the 1840s, they introduced the screw p- propeller. Uh, and at that point, it's like, it's all over for sales. Like, they're going to be around for a bit, but that's the end of it. This is when you start seeing it put on naval vessels. And um, it doesn't necessarily, as I was saying earlier, it doesn't necessarily increase speeds, but it does allow propulsion of larger vessels at the same speeds. So it's going to let you build larger and larger hulls. And bigger hulls mean bigger guns, which leads me to my next uh, my next item in the 1820s, which is improvements in artillery for uh, at sea. Artillery had come a long way during the Napoleonic Wars on land, but it has the same problems that we talked about earlier, right? Like you're kind of limited in the size of a, of a cannon. It needs to be somewhat portable. Um, it's a little bit difficult, but so so a typical ship of the line mainly is carrying 18 and 24 pound guns uh when guns are rated by pounds we're talking about the size of the projectile that they're firing so that's a that's a cannonball weighing 18 or 24 pounds which is not small but it's also not exactly huge when you're talking about something that's you know 100 meters long right Mm -hmm. also keep in mind that these are inert solid metal balls so like your best option here with these things is to fire enough of them into a ship like on mass that cumulatively they do like a pretty significant amount of damage but like one on its own i I mean unless you're standing like right where a cannonball blows through the hull things are probably okay because the ball's not exploding it's not fracturing it's just going through the ship and sinking until 1823 
when uh, a Frenchman named uh, Henri Joseph Paisan invents uh, the Paisan gun, uh, named after himself, which fired an explosive shell on, and this is key, a flat trajectory. So they didn't have the capability to fire exploding shells, right? But they were mainly like a mortar. So, you know, the whole like drop it into the tube and then it fires like straight up and then comes back down on like a very tall arc. Mm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, totally. Okay, that's fine in like a land battle, right? Because you don't exactly have to be accurate with the things. Imagine trying to hit a ship with one of those. (laughs) <laughs> like it, it, good luck it's not gonna happen nobody even bothered trying like it's too you're never you're, there's, there's no chance of hitting it it's too inaccurate yeah. it doesn't work Paisan comes up with a, a system um well let me ask you this you know in old cartoons uh when they have a bomb what does that bomb usually look like oh uh if it's classic it's probably like a uh dark metal ball with a string coming out of it yeah why is that why, why, what bomb have you ever seen that looks like that? I uh, no, no idea. I mean, only, unless it's a stick of dynamite, that was a pretty popular thing to do as well. But yeah, the bombs, the bombs. See, those bombs would have made sense if they were maybe the size of like a grapefruit, right? Because then you could like light the fuse and throw it and then it'd explode, right? Makes sense. But those bombs yeah. were always like, like bowling ball size, right? Yeah. Those were the munitions for the Paisan gu- uh, gun. Here's how it works. It works basically like a cannon, but what you do is you take a a cannonball-sized projectile that's filled with uh, gunpowder itself, okay? So you ram it down into the cannon, and it's filled with gunpowder, but it's strong enough to withstand the blast of the cannon, okay? So you blow this ball out out of the cannon towards your enemies. And what you want is for it to explode when it gets to the enemy. So how do you make that happen? You load it with the fuse downwards so that the fuse is lit by the explosion that drives the ball out of the cannon. Are you with me? Yeah, but like a, a fuse is it is it has has a length to it. How do you make sure that only the end of the fuse is lit and doesn't just detonate immediately well because some of it runs some of it runs into the projectile oh i see it's got some length inside the projectile yeah so the idea is you fire it the ball uh ideally goes through the hull into the ship but often would stick in the hull and then a couple seconds later the fuse would burn down and it would explode crazy this was a problem for wooden hulled ships yeah it became a big problem because you could fire it like a cannon, you know, regular point blank range, but the destructive capability of each projectile was significantly higher. Now, the French found them pretty unreliable, um, but, you know, the Americans uh, with a very early Navy adopted them. The Russians really liked them. And, you know, they, they really, by the time you get to the Crimean War, the Russians really like they devastated the Turkish army or the Turkish Navy with these, with these guns. They were very, very, very effective. The writing on the, on the wall kind of comes with, with that battle. You kind of see the, the capabilities of explosive uh, rounds. And over this period, we're talking industrial revolution. Metallurgy is getting better. In 1855, um, they introduce 
uh, rifled breech-loading artillery, which means you load it at the back of the gun and then seal the breech, right? And rifled means um, far more accurate. That means you lose the cap on the length of the guns, right? You can build bigger, better guns. Yeah. Uh, And then in 1861, percussion shells are introduced. You couldn't do this earlier because when you're firing a ball, who knows how it's going to stick into the hull, right? But now that we're firing a bullet-shaped projectile, we know what's going to hit first. It's the point. And so basically these projectiles have a secondary fuse in the tip of the projectile so that it explodes on contact. Like when it hits the hull of the ship, it explodes. Interesting. So once those came along, you didn't really need your goofy cartoon bombs anymore. It's weird that those became so popular as I mean, Bomberman, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, classic video game. Totally just throwing those things. Yeah, 100%. So uh, I think naturally in the our, our innovation for the 1830s has to be iron armor, right? This, this starts as a strip of uh, iron a few feet wide along the, the waterline. You would call this belt armor because that's the most vulnerable area right if you hit below like you're not going to hit below because it's below the water and balls deflect as we talked about you're not going to hit uh, or if you hit much higher above the water who cares it's going to get patched in like three minutes they're very quick at patching those holes um but if you hit right at the water line now you're in danger of sinking so they just armored that strip and then they realize, well, we can we can armor more than that. Like we can armor, for example, the magazine where all the powder is stored, because if that gets hit by an exploding projectile, that's uh, that's it. That's the end of it. Yeah. Game over. The uh, the Nemesis, which is a, a ship um, launched by the East India Company, was the first fully iron hulled combat vessel in 1839. So we're we're talking relatively early, but that's technically not. Uh, a military vessel. The rest of the navies of the world are going to catch up in in time. Um, by the 1850s, you get sort of a mini race between France and Britain for iron armor. Uh, 1858, there's the French Gloire, um, glory in French, uh, versus the uh, warrior in 1860. Uh, the the warrior is a little bit heavier armor but the gloire is a little bit faster you know like there's these like little tweaks to ship design that are kind of like well what's the best way to do this what's the trade-off right weight versus speed armor versus maneuverability like these are the kind of things that they're playing with in designs right in 1840s um this one i have uh this one i have mines so like uh, like harbor mines Uh, The idea that existed for centuries, they were often (laughs) like you would get stuff where they would like sail a seal, a a crate sealed with putty full of gunpowder. And they would kind of float it out into the harbor. And there was a guy that would like pull a ripcord that would like light a flint that would maybe set it off. And like it was a very like manual thing. Right. Right. Okay. But in 1842, Samuel Colt, like the the guy who invents the Colt revolver, um, Hmm. American chap, Samuel Colt comes up with uh, the electric mine, which has a um, like a battery on the shore and uh, it has uh, triggers. When you hit it, it's going to explode. And the U.S. Navy doesn't pick it up. They see it as kind of dishonorable, but the design is now out there and other people start iterating on it, right? Are these the classic picture of a sea mine with the, the urchin-like triggers everywhere? 
No, those will those will come a little bit later. Those are like World War One era mines. Okay. These were more just like a, a barrel, and they would have an anchor, so they'd be sitting below the surface. And right. yeah, they were they were pretty crude looking. But um, in 1855, uh, the British ship, the HMS Merlin, uh, is the first vessel sunk by uh, by mines by Russian mines, actually. So those are those are now a very or a relatively cheap way to protect home waters from enemy ships because you know where they are but the enemies don't or for blockading enemy ships into a harbor because they can't sail up through the mines um that 18 1855 sinking is also the first time that they launch uh mine sweeping initiatives where they're trying to clear out all the mines yeah i mean it wasn't it wasn't like a wasn't like it turned the tide of the of the battle or anything like that it's just you know all of a sudden now this is a real threat so a thing that we actually have to watch out for rather than kind of theoretical uh 1850s we get turrets imagine if the gun that's sticking off the side of your ship could move slightly <laughs> i don't know it seems so silly right when we're going from yeah. when we're going from like a, a like a literal cannon on like a wooden the trestle kind of like bringing it back on the wheels to reload and shoving it out and touching a match to it to like yeah what if we could actually machine uh metal well enough that we could have a turret that that turned so we could hit things that weren't directly 90 degrees from the bow of the ship um sounds great i mean you know like it's it's it, it seems it seems so silly but this is the stuff that people are excited about right like there's there's limited testing during the crimean war on these things that are like uh they weren't quite ships they were more like floating barges full of of uh of weapons they they had to be towed around and things like that but as ships get bigger and as um as they get heavier they can tolerate larger and larger guns on them and then in return, they can tolerate larger gun emplacements, right? Like they can handle a full turret system. Whereas to put that thing on a ship of the line and fire it off, you're you're risking putting it off off its keel, right? Like it's 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 a lot of firepower. You know, we've with with the with with that better artillery that we talked about since uh, since the 1820s. Like it's not just the fact that it's explosive; it's also going from you know a 24 pound projectile to a 30 pound a 32 pounder or even a 68 pounder right like we're firing much bigger rounds with much higher yield explosives so it's going farther it's packing more of a punch like this is all of a sudden like we we've got enough of a platform to launch these things off of um in a meaningful way so in 1859 the british admiralty orders testing of rotating gun turrets and they first uh, install it on one of these uh, these barges that I was talking about. Uh, they called it a floating battery uh, in 1861. And by uh, 1872, uh, the HMS Thunderer was one of the very first prototypes of uh, what would become the the battleship, like the, the the fleet standard, right? And it was number one, mastless, so it had no sails. Number two, it had a center superstructure. So, like, you know how battleships have that cluster of, of like, a tower that's kind of got all sorts of little different bulges and things coming off of it? And a, yeah. a bridge sitting up high for spotting and all of that. So, it had yep. one of those or a, an early version of one of those. 
and it had four 12 inch rifled guns in two turrets one uh four and one aft of the uh superstructure it's not a battleship but you look at it and you go oh yeah that's that's where they're going with this right right that's 1872 what's it called i'm gonna google image it real quick yeah it's called the thunderer okay yeah 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 you see what I mean? It, it looks like the battleship in the game Battleship. It a hundred percent does. These turrets aren't necessarily good to start with. Like the, it's hard to turn them. Um, some of them are are linked right into the uh, like the ship's engines, so they can only turn in one direction. And if you turn past your target, then you have to turn all the way around again. Mm. Uh, it can take uh, as much as like thirty seconds to do a full rotation. Sometimes, like they're not fast, but it's still an improvement. Yeah, and, and they're going to continue to be iterated on. They'll get their own engines eventually. Some of them can turn in the opposite direction eventually. You know what I mean? Like, these are these are iterative improvements. But tactically speaking, it changes the game. Now we don't have to worry about the line of battle as much, right? We don't. It doesn't matter where we're pointed uh, in terms of, like, the ship's vector. We can fire in whatever direction we want. Uh, in 1860s, uh, we get the development of the torpedo. Uh, or at least modern torpedo. They used to call all mines torpedoes, by the way, up until about 1900. So technically what we're talking about is the um, uh, the self-propelled torpedo. And the, like the concept has been around for a long time. There was this thing called spar torpedoes where they would basically take, they would take a bomb with like, well, like a spar, like you were, like you were talking about on the, on the big round mine that sits in the harbor, right? So there, right. there'd basically be a button on the end and they put it on like a 30 or 40 foot pole and then they'd go out on like a little speedboat holding this thing off the front of the boat and run the torpedo into the boat that they were trying to sink. Amazing. It was really bad. A lot of times it also sank the boat that was sailing them. They uh, misfired a lot. They, they dud fired a lot. Like it didn't work well. Right. But there were attempts. And then in 1866, you get a guy named Robert Whitehead who develops um, a special design for a self-propelled torpedo. And what's special about his torpedoes over other ones? Like they've had like wind up clockwork ones that can sort of like skim the top of the water, but like they bounce all over the place and they're really inaccurate and they, they don't work out well. What worked really well about Whitehead's torpedoes is he developed a mechanism to set a steady depth below the surface uh, using a hydrostat, which is a like a pressure sensor, and a pendulum. So there there had been like attempts to use hydrostats before, but they you tend to get like a an oscillation, uh, a depth oscillation around where you set it. So let's say you set it to ten feet. Probably what's going to happen is it's going to bounce between about two feet and about twenty feet, right? Right. As That's it, as, quite it a range. as it tries to self regulate based on pressure. The pendulum helps to even out that oscillation down to about six inches of where you set it. Wow. Which is really, really good. Yeah. Um, he's sending these things off. So he invents this in 1866. And by the 1870s, he has torpedoes running at 30 kilometers an hour underwater at a consistent depth, which is below the surface. And below the surface is important for a few reasons. Number one, doesn't get kicked off uh, course by waves. Number two, a lot harder to see. And number three, a strike on the sh uh, on the hull or a breach in the hull below the waterline is a sink. Right. 
Not necessarily, but that's how you get there. Yeah, yeah. By 1890, uh, he's got these torpedoes going at 56 kilometers an hour. Uh, he's added a gyroscope to keep it on course. You know, these these are inventions by other people. He's incorporated into the design, but still. Um, Whitehead's company is going to retain a monopoly on torpedo production for most countries. So they're selling to all sorts of countries uh, until World War I. If you were buying torpedoes, you were buying a Whitehead torpedo almost certainly. Old school naval commanders hate these things. They think they're sneaky. They think they're dishonorable. You know, real men get up uh, up beside each other in two wooden ships and pound each other with cannonballs until one or the other surrenders. Uh, Obviously. It's, it's that sort of mentality that's going on within the Admiralty, right? Right. But... I mean, the thing is, if you're a small nation who's just starting out, do you want to spend, uh, you know, at the time it would have been like two billion pounds to build a battleship? Um, oh, I don't even know what the conversion rate would be. It's tens and tens of millions of dollars. Or do you want to outfit a little like 30 foot boat carrying a couple of these torpedoes that might have the same effect? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's uh... a bit of a game changer. Mm-hmm. 1870s we get submarines i mean there were submarines before this a lot of them were like human powered like it's whatever air you manage to trap in there and like a guy pedals a paddle wheel to go forward like they weren't really i don't know it's it's flying the way that like a hang glider is flying i mean guess i guess kind of but not good <laughs> by the time you get to um, actually in 1864 the confederate navy a uh, submarine named called the hl hunley uh, had sunk a Union ship called the Housatonic uh, using one of those spar torpedoes we talked about. It also right. sunk itself with all hands lost. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> so, you know, by, by 1878, though, you have actual proper submarines invented. And by that, I mean, you know, uh, an Irish inventor named John Philip Holland had built the Holland One, um, which had an in- internal combustion engine. It ran on diesel when it's above the water and under the water it ran on a battery and it could stay under the water for a while these things didn't really move when they were under the water but they would like they would move around on top of the water sink and stay in place for some time and be able to fire torpedoes under the water okay these are going to be iterated on obviously um you know you get the swiss nordenfeldt which is like a 56 ton uh steam powered vessel armed with a single torpedo and, and that's in the like the mid 1880s um, but like functionally, this is the torpedo that's going to go to war in World War One, just continually approved upon. This is this is probably more upsetting than the torpedo itself. Now, the torpedo paves the way for the for the submarine, right? Like, there's no point in having a submarine if you can't fire a torpedo from underwater. So, the development of like the torpedo tube is also critical to all of this. But so, but now that the genie's out of the bottle, it's kind of like. All this talk about honor in battle and et cetera, et cetera. Even though, remember when we talked about like very early on, like the Spanish Armada partially being defeated by like setting boats on fire and ramming them into other boats isn't exactly like the picture of honor. This is an admiralty in the Royal Navy, especially that's like overshadowed by the the specter of Nelson, right? This heroic charge, this pitched battle, even though this was far from the norm, this was what they saw war at sea to be even nelson was breaking the rules to make that work sure it wasn't a uh a, a technology uh 
version of breaking the rules, but like broke the line. Oh, you're you're absolutely right. You're a hundred percent correct. And yet, it's been long enough, and the man's been enshrined in a way that it's rewritten that history, right? To be right. this like this picture of honor, this picture of you know British decency. He's you know he's got the massive statue in Trafalgar Square for goodness sake. Like he is Nelson is one of if you if you need to whittle British heroes down to let's say a top five, he's in there. Right. He's an important man and and he looms large in this era. 1880s, this isn't that exciting, but the development of smokeless powder. Um up until the 1880s where you we're talking about like black powder. So like sulfur and like big plumes of smoke and you know you can basically make the stuff in your in your garden shed if you if you so desired smokeless powder is developed by a frenchman in 1884 uh, paul viel and there's two advantages to this number one better visibility during battle after about the first 20 seconds of a battle between ships you can't see a thing it is completely chock full of smoke now you can see the ships after they've fired their cannons, which helps quite a bit in this era. But probably the bigger development here is that black powder is actually a low explosive. Um, we don't think of it that way because it's used in guns, but it has to be contained in order to explode. So if you mm. just had a pile of black powder, it would just burn. You know, the you know cartoons where they like again to the cartoons, but like they put a trail of black powder down. That's like right. a makeshift fuse. That's that's the black powder that they're using up until this this point. Okay. Smokeless powder is a high explosive. It's based partially on nitroglycerin, and it is actually explosive. Like it's percussive explosive, right? right? So you can't light it on fire, but when sufficiently ignited in a pressurized space, it will actually like explode. And this allows you to fire projectiles at a much higher velocity, which again, expands the size of the projectiles, expands the range of the projectiles. It turns battles into this very interesting trade-off that we're going to talk about a little bit more later. But the gun ranges are so long that they start rendering themselves useless because it's too hard to hit things at that range. Right which is an interesting trade-off to make you got the range you've got the power uh maybe we've even got some accuracy but at those distances it's just gotta get tricky <laughs> that's exactly right 1890s was the one i couldn't find like a single good uh uh development for so we'll do the 1900s instead which is a fire control system right um the royal navy develops uh something called the the dryer tables uh named after uh, Admiral Sir Frederick Charles Dreyer. And basically what it is, is a table of shorthand calculations that uh, utilized better um, range finding optics that were developed in this era to basically say, okay, we're going this speed. The enemy's going that speed. They're this far away. They're going in this direction. What angle do I have to set my guns at? The start of could be computer controlled they've just got the math worked out that's right and, and and this is going to um actually be applied through mechanical calculators very early on yeah so they have like physical like gearbox uh mechanisms that are calculating this stuff out but 
like it's it's hard to impress like you think of you, especially when you're thinking of those like pitched tall ship battles um the range on these battles they're so far away like they're not they're not shooting dozens and dozens of of, of cannonballs into each other anymore your hit percentage one two percent like on a good day right okay you're not hitting the other shit so any any edge that you can get is is an improvement so uh you mentioned everybody's kind of getting rusty uh just in terms of, of of advancing their fleets but not necessarily i mean i guess like they're still getting up to some wars right they're testing these in real scenarios right mainly war games and oppressing you know overseas colonies <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Um you know, well, tell you what. We've been going for a while. So, why don't we take a break and when we come back we'll talk about what the uh what the logical outcome of all of this is cuz you're right. They do need to figure something out, right? They need to have some uh, indication of how to use all these new tools. So, where does that come from and how do they interpret that data? But uh yeah, first let's uh let's take a quick break. Okay. good. Back on HI101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. Hello. And uh, just before we took a break, you took, you asked a very perceptive question, which is with no conflicts and all of this advancement, how does Britain stay on top of all of this and retain uh, their naval supremacy? And yeah, I mean, that is the fundamental question, I think, of this whole episode to a certain extent um because it's true i mean after essentially between the crimean war so 1850 to 1853 and the first world war um britain's not really involved in any major conflicts uh navally speaking and honestly even the crimean war that's debatable whether or not we're willing to consider it a a major naval conflict um a, a lot of people would say that Essentially, the Napoleonic War was the last time that the the British Navy was used in a in a major conflict. So, what were they doing with these ships? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is um, functionally gunboat diplomacy, right? This idea that, uh, well, for example, uh, China, right, in the eighteen thirties, they have all of these uh, economic issues. I, I I went into it in pretty uh, significant depth in the in the tea episode, but essentially. Um, they wanted to be able to sell uh, opium in uh, in China to pay for their uh, tea addiction, and the Chinese government didn't like that, and so they they manufactured reasons to go to war over it. And a lot of that involved parking large uh, Royal Navy vessels outside of ports and bombarding. I mean, that's a that's a very real tactic in this in this era. And the Chinese didn't really have a fleet in the 1830s. They are a land power. They had no real need for it. So what do you do when you're Britain? Um, the, main, the main thing that they do in this era is watch other powers. Because, you know, there, there's, kind of, there, there's kind of three camps that, that uh, powers are falling into. Uh, one is Britain. They're basically in a class of their own. And more or less everyone assumes that they are the best and that they can't be touched. And they're not going to discourage that impression by any means, but also as more and more time goes on and more and more things change, at a certain point, they're kind of riding more on reputation than necessarily 
uh, true kind of supremacy or prowess, right? Right, yeah. Then you have um, these older powers who, you know, at one point might have taken on Britain, but have sort of accepted their place as being second-rate naval powers. We're talking about France, for example, Spain, certainly, uh, maybe even to some extent Russia. It's not that these places aren't maintaining a navy. They're just not willing to put the type of money into it that Britain is because they're not invested in being the biggest and the baddest. They just want enough to sort of reasonably expect to cause some trouble if it ever came down to it, right? Like they're they're more concerned with the economic realities of sea control. They just want to be able to conduct their business without being harassed, essentially. And that ends up being as much a a diplomatic consideration as a military one. Then you have these new powers that crop up through the 19th century. And I I mean, I'm, I'm stretching the definitions of 19th century a little bit here, but you have a lot of very young nations or nations that have changed in a significant way that sort of have something to prove. So we're talking about the United States. Uh, later in the 19th century, we're talking about Italy and we're talking about Germany. We also have some reforms in Russia in terms of where they see their place in the world. Like there are there are these powers that are kind of like trying to establish a foothold. And then outside of Europe, of course, you have powers like, for example, China, who get trounced by the Royal Navy and decide, wow, we could really use a Navy of our own. Right. Or you have Japan, which is opened up in um, the 1860s by uh, having a, you know, an American ship sail into uh, Edo Harbor and, and say, like, blow up a building with the newest of explosive shells and go, if you don't allow trade here, we're going to continue doing this. And they go, oh, uh, I, I guess we need a navy too. So these new powers are not necessarily willing to spend the money on. We're not really talking about ships of the line anymore, especially as we move further into 19th century. But you know, the ship of the line is really replaced by what's known as the ironclad, right? So it's a wooden ship with iron uh, armor on the sides. Usually, it'll still have a wooden deck, and it might be. Or it would likely have sails, but it would also have assistance from a steam engine. Gotcha. Okay. Depending on where we're at, uh, it would would sort of dictate the the size and quality of the guns, things like that. So when you're talking about the Royal Navy, you could either take chances on innovation, or you could continue doing what's worked for you for a very long time and is yet to be proven not to work for you, which is build giant ships with giant guns. And that makes a lot of sense when you're Britain, right? Like that's, you, you can afford it. It's what's always gone well for the Royal Navy. Um, there, there's, a, there's a doctrine in place of how to use those effectively. Britain's always looked at the Navy as being a, 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 an offensive force, right? So that's about the projection of power elsewhere, not just locally defensive. But what do you do, for example, when you're the Confederate States of America in 1860? War breaks out. The North has a significantly higher industrial capacity than you do. Uh, The North has all the battleships because they're controlled by Washington. The the Confederates have ceded from the the federal government and they don't really get any ships in that deal. And your entire economy is based on the export of uh, cotton. You're a plantation uh, economy, right? And it doesn't matter that you're working off of 
slave labor if you can't sell that cotton somewhere, right? So what do you do? Do you start building ironclads? I mean, yeah, a couple, but you, you can't produce them at the same rate as the union. So instead, they start looking into what, do we, what can we do differently, right? The union doesn't actually have uh, very much in the way of, of ironclads at all. Um, and southern production is pretty slow. But what they find is if they work on heavily armored ships, the mostly wooden ships of the north actually don't fare very well against armored ships. They're still using pretty traditional like British tactics of, of you know, uh, the line of battle, broadside, firing, all of that. And it kind of just bounces off the, the iron armor. Um, right. And so what they find is, okay, well, if you can't beat numbers, beat with technology. So a small number of ironside ships has a greater impact initially on all of those wooden ships than uh you know just trying to match wooden ship for wooden ship as the civil war progresses the north begins uh developing iron clad ships as well the south loses that early advantage and uh the union is able to blockade uh the confederate states uh pretty effectively relatively early on and uh that economic stranglehold is um, very helpful in in winning that war, right? And that's when the the Confederates are going to turn to uh, submarine attempts. That's when they're going to turn to what's known as uh, torpedo boats, right? And those are small. Th- those are those boats we were talking about with those spar torpedoes on the front, right? Okay, which are very cheap to make and really devastating to a large ship, because if you have a large, large, large gun, that works really well against something else that's large. It's really hard to hit something small. Yeah, makes sense. Like it, it's it's at a certain point, it's like trying to shoot a fly with a handgun. Like right. if you if you get it, it's done. But like, good luck actually hitting it. Yeah. So what do we learn? What is what does everyone else learn from the Civil War? They learn that economic warfare is more significantly helpful than pitched battle. Uh, they learn about uh, asymmetric warfare in naval warfare, that small boats armed with strategic weapons can be very effective against large boats. You know, British investors were building blockade runners to run those union blockades because they were invested in the cotton industry and needed to get their products out of there. So also learning that effectively evading blockade could be uh, important in a similar situation. So there's like little lessons that we can take from all of these situations, right? Like they're watching these side conflicts. There's a, you know, there's a small naval race in South America as all of these various former uh, Spanish colonies uh, establish their place in the world, right? So Argentina and Chile have this this massive race uh, in the 1860s, 1870s, uh, trying to outdo each other with building navies. And so when those two get in, into scraps, the British are watching very closely. Which tactics are working better? Are faster ones or heavier armored ones more effective? Is it worth building, you know, a 12-inch gun over an 8-inch gun? Things like that, right? They're not. They're not fighting anymore they're they're just watching other people fight and trying to learn from that which if you're not getting into these big conflicts yourself i suppose is uh is your best bet if we're talking in video games they're trying to learn the meta without actually playing the game (laughs) 
Right. That's that's what's going on here, right? They're trying to figure yeah. out the strategy without actually attempting it, without actually implementing it themselves. And so maybe they can tell you what the best strategy is, but they don't have like they've drilled on it, but they've never actually played an opponent. Right, right. And that's a tricky spot to be in. Yeah. Usually not a good spot to be. <laughs> no. <laughs> Britain doesn't always take the right lessons from all of this not necessarily it's it's hard to blame them too much i I want to stress that the the navy that exists in the 1850s and 1860s like people that served in the napoleonic wars are now the leaders of this are of this navy right until the 20th century essentially you were starting on a british ship as an ensign so as a as a commissioned office officer on the the track to become captain or admiral you were starting as young as 8 say 8 yeah yeah boys boys served on those ships uh very very frequently so i mean if you're on the officer track you might be starting at say 11 12 13 as an ensign uh if you are <laughs> just a common person and your your life is going to be at sea you might start as a, a landsman or as a cabin's boy uh at, at eight yeah when you said it when you first said eight i'm like team no <laughs> no your hand their, their hands you see they're, they're so small they're so <laughs> so good at getting into into the nooks and crannies of the ship um no i mean it's it's <laughs> Look, I, it is what it is. Like, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and defend putting an eight year old on a warship. That's that's <laughs> simply not gonna happen. Um, yeah. But that being said, with some experience, by the age of sixteen, you could essentially be, um, uh, you know, an able seaman, which is about as high a rank as a common person is gonna get, unless they specialize into like a, oh, I don't know, a ship's carpenter or something along those lines, right? and at that point like you this this is your career made like you have a life in front of you and it's not the worst one out there especially in a time of relative peace right um so it's an attractive uh career path for a lot of boys and young men in uh in britain in the 19th century again i I mean it's not it's not something to be uh defended necessarily so much as like this is not unusual like it would not be it would not be rare like we you and i would absolutely know several people who had uh joined the navy uh in their young teens easy easy the point of all this though is that someone who's who is an ensign at 13 in 1812 like just do the math right in the 1850s they're the ones that are uh captains and admirals you have a navy that's come up on Number one, ships of the line. Number two, legends of Nelson. And so, of course, the lesson that they're going to take away from some of this is, you know, well, uh, you know, yes, the 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 Confederate Army uh, or the Confederate Navy used torpedo boats uh, with some success, but the 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 Union won the war, and they're the ones with the large ships. So clearly, the large ships are superior, and that doesn't force them to negotiate with this uh, idea of. The royal navy that they have right it doesn't force them to change tactics it doesn't like it's it's there's a certain conservative comfort to the admiralty and by the admiralty i mean like the naval leadership uh right. in britain um in this period where if things are working for you why change them is the is the fundamental problem here right and nothing has come up to suggest that it's not working 
Now, if you are the new nation of, of Italy and you have no Navy and you need to make a name for yourself in the world. And part of that means, you know, uh, colonies in Africa, because that's what's in vogue in the 19th century is, is carving up Africa. Um, you're going to need something to get your troops over there. And probably a battleship style Navy is not the best thing at your disposal. Right. That brings us back to torpedo boats. Build yourself you know, like that's, you know, by mid 1870s, these boats are, you know, 30, 40 feet. Um, they're carrying uh, early tube launchers. They're going to have a few torpedoes per ship. You can do a lot of damage with these things. And it's um, significantly cheaper than large ships. It's relatively safe for people operating the torpedo boats. And the British style of large ship Navy doesn't really have a good counter for them yet. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, do you want to build one, maybe, battleship? Or do you want to have a fleet of uh, small, uh, maybe a couple of frigates and a whole bunch of, of torpedo boats, right? That actually could be effective in multiple places at once, could have a chance against um, a more established nation's navy. Yeah, it's a bit of a, cho- like a, it's a, bit of a chance on strategy, but... It's not a bad one, necessarily. Not to uh, distract too much, but um, what's going on with warplanes at this time? And do they participate in, I guess, a theoretical naval battle since since the British aren't really having any real ones? Right. So you're a little early. Uh, the first flight is going to be in 1903. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so there, there aren't any. Um, and that's that's really where you get the battleship as the symbol of ultimate projection of power, right? That's how you get your ability to inflict violence on others to other parts of the world is via the sea. Water transport is the fastest method of human transport up until very recently. Like, more recently than you would think. We're, we're talking like you you pretty much need an internal combustion engine to make it much faster and that goes back a long time you know uh sailing up and down or sailing down a river with the current or even punting up a river against the current is often faster or in terms of like the amount of stuff you can move than walking uh horses tire you know like there our waterways have always been the most critical thing to human infrastructure again up until basically the 20th century and like you and i growing up when we did we don't think of them that way necessarily our world is no longer built that way but the water is like everything up until now oh and look at any major city in europe and it's not hard to yeah. uh to tell that that's where where we got started they're all on on uh, major waterways yeah 100 percent. it makes perfect sense but yeah the, the the idea of being able to look nobody in that point nobody at that point thought that they could reliably project power into say mongolia right like it's 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 in the middle of a continent and it's hard to get an army there and it's a long way away from everything like they don't see that as being central to control but if you can blockade Russia, for example, on, you know, in two very narrow spots, maybe three. So if you can blockade uh, the Black Sea, which traditionally the, the Turks didn't let them out of, 
anyways uh the baltic sea which the british were very easily able to do with with very close access if you could also keep them from getting out of the the far east like the pacific they were just stuck in russia and like that's fine you know like they can they can have russia you're probably not going to do anything about it but they also can't project russian power anywhere else unless they're willing to march an army somewhere does that you kind of see where i'm coming from on that totally yep so yeah air power is really not not factor for a long time it's not even really being considered necessarily i mean uh you know people are looking at inventions obviously but yeah tactically speaking uh no we're we're a long way from from that even being thought about the torpedo boat system is so promising that the french begin looking at it as a matter of public or of, of national policy relatively early on they'd already been looking at there, there was this theory of, of naval control in in uh france 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 sorry uh called the génical so like the new school is usually how it's translated literally the young school that basically said like look we're never going to beat britain on a like a ship to ship battle so we need to find ways to fight from a disadvantage right and partially that's where those uh paisan guns had come from right explosives where it's kind of like well we can put one of these on a small ship and we can destroy an entire ship of the line we don't need a battleship sized ship or a ship of the line sized ship to destroy a ship of the line we just need a ship with these guns and as the torpedo boats are introduced it's kind of like well they gave it a shot with building large iron hulled uh um ships in the 1850s and the british just outspent them immediately and so they kind of pivot to using smaller ships that are more agile that are better at fighting a superior power it's it's not like you can be a hundred percent effective just having uh either of those strategies right because i think you need the big ships to threaten the land those little torpedo boats aren't going to be able to threaten a harbor they're really just anti-big ship that's a really strong point yeah you're absolutely right and that's the thing is what is your objective in this war britain is about uh, there's two kind of contradictory ideas of what to do with the navy um and sometimes they actually work in tandem uh but they're 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 sort of opposite uh um philosophies of what a navy is for one is sea control, as in you control access to the sea. It would be similar to like the idea of air superiority, where it's like you are so overwhelmingly in control of it that you make the call as to who can move through this space, right? Right. And then the other one is sea denial. And the difference there is that you don't necessarily need to control the sea. You just need to make it impossible for your opponent to use the sea. Sure. Okay. You see, like, it's it's a subtle difference, but it's an important one, right? And Britain is coming at this from a place of sea control. France is coming at this from a place of sea denial. You know, if 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 I can't have it, no one can, essentially, in the in the uh in the case of a combat uh scenario. Right. But the thing is, they actually have a chance to test their torpedo boats in combat 1883 to 1885 they there's a sino-french war so they go to war 
against uh, the Chinese. And here's an interesting thing about the the Chinese uh, uh, Navy in this period. With all the iteration on new armor technology, gun technology, hull types, um, and with Britain trying to stay on top of this, they get into this really bad cycle of building a ship and it becomes obsolete in a lot shorter amount of time than you would expect. Keep in mind those like every single decade improvements that we were talking about. Yeah. And I imagine you're not building these ships quickly. Like how long does it take to build one ship? Uh, I would say like an average would be like two years. Yeah. There's, there's, there's slow, there's slow projects, sometimes longer. Um, and especially if you're experimenting with new construction techniques, new materials, uh, prototyping new things, it can take longer. Like three years is not unheard of. So you have a ship. It was the best thing there was 20 years ago. It's now considered garbage. What do you do with it? You need to build a new ship to replace it. Where do you get the money for it? You sell it. Yeah. You're not worried about who you're selling it to because you're building a new, more superior ship. You're getting right. money to fund your new ship. Um, I don't know. It's like trading your car in every two years. Like you can, <laughs> you can make it work. It can get yeah. a little bit expensive that way, but like you can make it work. Uh, you just got to never let the cycle stop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, someone else is getting a bunch of perfectly good. I mean, out of date, but otherwise functioning cars slash ships. Yeah. Um, so... It, and it's 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 tough for Britain to justify because it's expensive. And a century before, a ship could be good for, I don't know, decades. It's a ship. Like, what do you want? Like, there's there's improvements, <laughs> of course. But, like, if it's seaworthy, chances are it can be refitted so it's at least somehow useful. Right? Remember we talked a little bit about the Opium War and how the, the Chinese had no real navy to speak of in the 1830s, 1840s? Well, they decided to build a navy. And when you're building a navy, there's kind of two ways you can go about it. One is to build dry docks, uh, commission people to design ships, um, hire huge workforces to build said ships. It's an extremely complicated, extremely difficult prospect. Like this is like the space program of the era, right? Yeah. Or... You could find somebody who was already making them and just buy one, like buy the ship. And like, yeah, you still have to find sailors. You still have to find admirals, all of that stuff. But at least all of that infrastructure that goes into building one can be cut out of the equation. Right. And that's valuable. So when the French go to, go to war with China in the 1880s, the ships that they're fighting are somewhat out of date. British ships and their torpedo boats do pretty good. Mm -hmm. They're pretty successful. And I mean, I, I, you know, it's not an equivalent because, uh, the Chinese Naval command is not anywhere close to what the Royal Navy would be able to do with these ships. Sure. Yeah. But proof of concept proof, proof of concept is the right. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what we're looking for here. Yeah. Uh, immediately after this war, France begins investing in torpedo boats and submarines in a big way. 
The other place that these powers look to are naval strategists, like academics, essentially. And by far the most important of this period is uh, an American naval officer and historian named Alfred Thayer Mahan, lived 1840 to 1914, served as an officer for the Union during the Civil War, uh, and taught at um, West Point. He had developed this historical theory of naval power and basically said that not only is it important for powers to have a strong navy, but indeed that it was impossible to have an empire without a navy. And I mean, his work was very selective. Let me put my cards out on the table. I'm not a huge uh, Mahan fan. Uh, there's <laughs> another one that we're going to come back to that I like a lot better. Um, that being said, Mahan was a much more influential uh, uh, theorist, at least in the day, than uh, the guy that I like. Um, so that being said, he was very selective about who he looked at. I mean, if you're looking at major historical powers and and their impact on the world, and you're looking at the British, the Dutch, the Spanish, like that's great. But if you're not also uh, looking at you know significant like land powers. Yeah, like the French, uh, the Prussians, uh, you know, like, you know, you might be a little incomplete on that. Right. The -hmm. idea that you can't have empire without sea. Anyways, uh, I'm getting I'm getting off topic there. (laughs) The point of all of this is that Mahan basically he, he emphasized sea control, like the British strategy, right? Controlling the sea, not just denying it from your enemies. You need to have what he would call a blue sea navy. As in, not only do you have a navy that guards your shores, but you also have a navy that can operate in international waters, you know, without harassment. And in this power, or in this period, essentially, Britain is the only one with a a true blue sea navy. The alternative here is a green sea navy. Um, That's like a defensive one. Anyway, he, Mahan's focus was on winning pitched battles and as a secondary option, uh, blockades, uh, those being the two core functions of a naval power and the ideal sort of uh, projection of naval power being sinking enemy ships in conclusive battle. Trafalgar style. Trafalgar, Trafalgar style is exactly right. And, and so he's advocating for the battleship as the ultimate naval tool. So 1870s, 1880s, we're looking at like the development of the modern battleship, right? Um, this is the one that we were we were looking at earlier, the the Thunderer. Thunderer. Yeah. Um, that's the tool that that uh, Mahan sees as the future of naval control. Big guns, big ships, lots of armor, lots of power. Um, he wrote a book in 1890 called uh, "Influence of Sea Power Upon History." And this book is an international success. Um, The British Admiralty read it widely. It falls right into their idea of sea power, right? Um, Right. The uh, Imperial Japanese Navy is smitten by this. All of the biggest leaders in the the Japanese Navy are reading translations of Mahan. Um, The the Kaiser mandated a copy of this be handed to every single German captain and that they must read it like <laughs> it is it is an influential work on the naval world in the late 19th century right. um but it advocates for those big ships those big guns these huge battles right things start really shifting around the 1890s there's sort of three big things that i want to look at 
Number one, in 1889, something is passed in Britain called the Naval Defense Act. This codifies something known as the two power standard. British leadership is no longer feeling in, in about 1890 is no longer feeling quite as confident about like the assurance of victory at sea. And they start believing that it's important to maintain a numerical advantage, a significant numerical advantage to ensure the, the defense of Britain. And this is in a climate of like pre first world war, like shifting allegiances, you know, is, are we friendly with Russia? Are we enemies with Russia? What's France up to? Um, right. All of that stuff, right? When they put the two power standard into place, essentially what the two power standard says is Britain has the largest navy in the world right now. What we want is a navy that is at least the size of the second place and third place navies. So that even if two of our enemies uh, grouped up against us, we would still be able to maintain control of the sea. That math checks out. At the time, we're talking about France and Russia as the two uh, that they are measuring this against. Uh, that's our second and third places. Right. The second thing that I want to point out is that in 1892, uh, Alfred von Tirpitz, who is the uh, admiral of the uh, newly formed Germany's uh, newly formed German Navy, Tirpitz starts pushing really hard for fleet development. In this Mahanian style, we need battleships. And this is like, there's a couple of things happening here. Part of it is this is a very new nation looking to put their, uh, their stamp on the world, sort of like what we've talked about with, um, with Italy, with Argentina. And building a fleet is a prestige move. Again, I would point to something like uh, the space programs today. I would point to... Um, you know, the development, like the, the obvious uh, comparison is like development of a nuclear arsenal, right? Right. Um, the idea that you're not a true power if you can't project power at sea. And based on the way that Britain's been using it over the 19th century, like I can see the, I, I can see where he's coming from on that one, I suppose. Part of it is that they have some diplomatic issues with uh, Russia that they uh, want to kind of get out ahead of because Russia does have a large uh, navy at this point in time. Um, and part of it is to put diplomatic pressure on the Brits. They don't think that they're going to match the Royal Navy, but they want at least something to bargain from. Remember a while ago now, um, we were talking about the idea of a fleet and being? Yes, you know, I remember uh, fleet, fleet and being. Yeah. Right. So how just the very act of having a fleet, even if not expecting it to be uh, a one-to-one -one match for your enemies, is in and of itself a defensive strategic maneuver that ties up the, uh, the offensive uh, abilities of your enemies, right? Right. This, just having this fleet puts extra pressure on Britain just by its very existence, even if it never leaves the harbor. It is causing problems. And Tirpitz is hoping that by having this fleet, it gives Germany uh, diplomatic leverage over Britain. What that specific leverage is going to be, I'm not sure. Like there's not like a, a specific objective for that. It's just one more tool in their diplomatic arsenal. And this is the 1890s. Things are getting a little bit stressful, right? Yeah, we're, we're, getting, to, uh, we're getting to some interesting times. The third thing I want to point out is that in 1890, uh, a man named John Fisher is made admiral 
in uh, the Royal Navy. John Fisher, uh, he went by Jackie, so you'll hear Jackie Fisher pretty often. Admiral Sir Jackie Fisher is, uh, he is, I, I find him just endlessly fascinating as a, as a person. He entered the Navy in 1854 as an ensign, and uh, his, his first posting, and this kind of tells you everything you need to know about Jackie Fisher. His first posting in 1854 was aboard the HMS Victory. The Victory had been Nelson's flagship at Trafalgar. Okay, yeah. In 1854. So we're talking about nearly 50 years later. Okay. That's the Navy that he steps into. And his first command of a battleship, this isn't his first command, but the first battleship that he gets in 1882, he's given command of the Invincible. The Invincible is like a a true battleship. It has an iron hull. It has 12 inch guns, uh, just a massive piece of technology. It also has sails. Like it has a mast with sails or several masts with sails. That just for backup? They're not even functional, but you know oh. what they but you know what they do use them for is running sail drills, which is a key performance indicator in the Royal Navy in 1882. Still, <laughs> when they're in the middle of developing their their battleship program, interesting. We're not quite at like a World War One level battleship. That's going to come in a few years um, right. with the the dreadnought in 1905. Uh, sorry, 1906. Um, that's that's really the the gold standard for for battleships. Um, but we're close enough that what are we doing with sails, and why are we running sail drills on? And like that that to me kind of typifies what's gone wrong with the Royal Navy in this era. Yeah, that they see the hallmark of being a capable seaman to be how fast can you raise sails on a ship that doesn't need them yeah it's like you're uh you're putting uh reins uh in your car because you missed the horse a little bit yeah that's a that's a good comparison so fisher ends up being very much a reformer right like he's like he he's looking around at this navy that's fundamentally stale, sees no need to innovate. He's looking at other powers who are trying to find uh, creative ways to counter the Royal Navy with new types of ships, and he's looking at all of this and going like, "What are we? What are we doing?" Germany is is looking at ways to fight economic blockades, realizing that that's a potentially important part of naval warfare you know france has moved entirely to, to submarines like what are we what are we doing and so he's looking around very much with an eye to what what can we improve right and so one of the first uh one of the first major projects he takes on is uh overseeing the development of a destroyer class ship for the royal navy destroyers are not new um the original name for them is actually torpedo boat destroyer. The whole point of a destroyer is, okay, you've got these big exposed battleships and now you have these tiny little ships that can dart in and hit them with torpedoes. How do we counter that? A destroyer is a small, fast, maneuverable ship with ship-to-ship guns on it. So you're talking like little, I don't know, you might be talking four-inch uh, guns on there. Um, and, and it's not, it's not small, small, right? Like you're talking about, uh, a hundred foot vessel or something like that, but the whole point is countering all these small, uh, 
uh, ships that are being developed to counter battleships, right? Like now all of a sudden we're in this little bit of a, uh, well, again, an evolution of the meta, right? Have we hit the, the, the rocks of paper where the battleships are really good at taking out the destroyers, which are really good at taking out the torpedo ships, et cetera, et cetera? Not quite because frigates are a little bit better against a, a, a destroyer, but frigates a little bit of a mushy category. No, the <laughs> other thing that you're, you're really looking at is what's known as a cruiser, um, which is uh, significantly, it, it's still a very large ship. Uh, it is significantly faster than a battleship and much less well-armed. The idea being uh, these are mostly like reconnaissance vessels. So they go very, very fast. There's a lot of people on it. They can defend themselves against destroyers. So they're sort of solo operators. Mm. Um, but if they get, if they see a battleship, they just turn and run in the other direction and there's no chance the battleship can catch them. Gotcha. So there's these new, like, there's these different classes of ship being built up um, that are sort of like we're, we're on a trajectory towards like a mixed role fleet, right? where you have like a battleship on its own is no good. You need a battleship that's supported by destroyers that's, and those are supported by cruisers, which are better at taking out destroyers than battleships are. Um, you know, like the, you want, you want multiple roles that are filling uh, or multiple specialties that are fulfilling different roles um, within a, a fleet action. Now we're thinking about strategy in a way that's actually modern. That's, meaningful maybe to the way that the royal navy might push forward but we're still kind of working from a place of like theory right the next thing that uh fisher takes on is enhanced efficiency in all aspects so better drilling accuracy drilling was a big passion of his like we need to get those numbers up um construction and repair time he he took a battleship that was taking three years to to build and got it down to two, you know, took uh, gun changes uh, for maintenance from two days down to two hours at one point. Like he's going like, this is the stuff that's actually going to make a difference in a battle. Right. Like war isn't about, uh, he, he was, he was very interested in, in Clausewitz um, who wrote a book called on war in the wake of, of the, the Napoleonic Wars, who very much stra uh, uh, emphasized like strategy. Like this is where you get into like the boring stuff of war. War isn't the battle. War is the logistics that support the battle, right? right? Okay. And and Fisher saw uh, these improvements throughout the Navy. So better training for his officers. All of this is being the stuff that's actually going to save Britain if it comes down to it. He is fighting a very conservative admiralty through all of this, and he's also fighting against a public that sees the Navy as being somewhat sacrosanct. So, you know, it's not that Fisher didn't like battleships. He didn't see them as a be-all and end-all, um, but the public wanted battleships, so he had to build battleships. Mm -hmm. So there is a little bit of, like, back and forth on that, right? He was a good friend of uh, my preferred naval historian slash strategist, uh, Sir Julian Corbett, um, who was not terribly uh, influential at the time, other than maybe his friendship with uh, with Fisher. But realistically, outside the Admiralty, he was basically re rediscovered in the 90s. Um, Corbett, uh, he was a contemporary of Mahan, but disagreed with him on a lot of key differences, uh, stressed sea denial, um, acknowledge the economic realities of war, basically saying like, look, this isn't about battles. This is about wearing your opponent down. If that means disrupting trade, so be it. 
that means disrupting lines of communication, so be it. Those are the things that actually win a war, right? Uh, defense is important. Strategy is important. Fleets in being are important, right? Mm-hmm. He wrote a 1910 book called Some Principles of Maritime Strategy that's, uh, uh, I think, a much better picture of the future of naval strategy from this point out. Uh, so it's one of those, like, he, he might be more right, but he certainly wasn't more popular. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, Fisher, Fisher did listen to his ideas and, and was trying to kind of mold the, the Navy as much in that direction as he could without basically coming out and saying, look, there's not going to be a big glory. Like there won't be another Trafalgar essentially. Yeah. 1897 Germany really kicks production into high gear. Uh, Wilhelm, uh, agree, uh, Wilhelm II agrees to fund Tirpitz's, uh, battle, uh, uh, battleship initiatives. And basically what happens there is it triggers a feedback loop in that two power standard of the Royal Navy, right? Where if you have to have as much as the second place and third place navies combined, and you have a new power that takes over third place and then second place with its numbers, you have to match that growth no matter what. Right. So this turns into this back and forth of of naval bills between the two powers. It's very boring, but like one side goes, well, we're going to build three battleships a year. And the other side goes, well, now we're going to build two ships for every one ship you build and blah, 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 blah. And the public eat it up. Like this is the kind of thing that like tonnage of battleships being built is, is being reported in the newspapers. And like it's it's very, very like it's on top of everybody's minds. Um, but it's also insanely expensive. Yeah. Just, just prohibitively expensive. And the Admiralty is also like a little worried about it because it's like, okay, on one hand, we want the best and the latest ships and, and enough ships to do what we need to. But also, are we building ships that are going to be out of date in a decade? 1904, Fisher uh, commissions the design of the HMS Dreadnought, which is a, a name you may have actually uh, heard. It's a, it's a very famous ship. The Dreadnought is, uh, it is the demarcation point between the old battleship and the new ones. You are a Dreadnought class or you are a pre-Dreadnought class. Right, okay. And it, functionally what this means, like from, from a practical standpoint, is um, the thickest armor everywhere, very fast, and only 12-inch guns. Let's not mess around with the little ones anymore. Yeah, I don't really think about a Dreadnought as a ship. Are you saying it's just one ship? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was there. There is an HMS Dreadnought. Fun fact for you: HMS Dreadnought was the uh, was the last ship to ram another ship in in combat when it uh, it rammed a German U boat in 1915. On purpose? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was an intentional act. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Did it Did it work out okay? <laughs> Everything. Yeah, it did what it meant to. Um, but yeah, anyway, no, the Dreadnought is its own thing, and it's like. We're talking 800 seamen. We're talking 160 meters long, weighed 18, or displaced 18,000 tons. Uh, right. It had a top speed of about 40 kilometers an hour, which is pretty fast at this point in time for such a big vessel. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like, okay, well, this is the new standard. Like any ship built after that is built to dreadnought standards. Right. In 1904, um, Russia and Japan go to war with each other. And this is. I mean, obviously a terrible thing, but also a really fascinating thing for everybody who's watching. 
for a number of reasons. Uh, Japan is modernized really quickly after the opening up by the Americans. Uh, they basically took it in stride and said, listen, if we're going to get involved with the outside world, we better do it right. And they did their best to learn about literally any topic from the people who were best at it. And that becomes very granular. So instead of buying hulls from the British or buying entire ships from the British, like say the Chinese would, they went to Britain solicited the best shipmakers and asked them to come back to Japan and show them how to build a dry dock, how to design a ship, how to test a ship hull, uh, how to prototype all of this stuff, how to build it. And then right. once they were able to do all of that domestically, they said, well, thank you. Goodbye. Um, and now they have domestic uh, capabilities for all of this. And the British had the best hulls out there. But, you know, for example, the, the Germans had the best guns. So they went to the, the Germans and got uh, got guns from them. They got, you know, Dutch optics, all of this stuff where it's kind of like we're going to get all the best chunks of this thing and put it together. And so their navy in at the turn of the 20th century is one of the most sophisticated in the world. They don't have a bunch of old ships weighing them down. They did everything they could to design new ships at the top standard. The world is watching to see what they're going to do with this. So the first thing they do is go to war with uh, China in 1894 and 1895, but they're fighting against those really out-of-date uh, British vessels um, that are poorly commanded, and they win handily. But it's kind of like, okay, well, it's sort of seen as like a regional uh, uh, conflict. When they go to war with Russia in 1904, which, by the way, is over access to a warm water port on the Pacific, uh, so very much like a, a naval concern, yeah, this is watched very carefully because not only is it like this shiny new navy, it's also um, well. I mean, there's no sugarcoating it. Everyone expected Russia to win just because they were European, and the non-European power had not beaten European power since essentially the Mongolians. Right, and okay. they they ascribed um, a uh, shall we say a, a racial explanation to that, mm -hmm. but. The Russians, while they had a larger navy, um, didn't have a lot of battleships. They had gone more for a cruiser model. And they didn't have the money to refresh it every 10 years like the British. So they were older ships. And the, I mean, there's a, there's a land war component to this war. It's not interesting compared to the sea. Essentially, the way this war starts is that three hours before declaring war, a bunch of uh, Japanese torpedo boats sailed into... The harbor at Port Arthur, which is where the the Russian fleet or the, the Russian Pacific fleet was harbored, um, sank a bunch of their boats with torpedoes and then mined the harbor so that they couldn't get out, effectively negating any naval power that Russia had in the Pacific. Right. And so the Russians sent their Baltic fleet um, halfway around the world. It took them seven months. Uh, some of them sailed through the uh, through the Mediterranean. Uh, through the Suez Canal. Some of them uh, went all the way around uh, Africa. They all met up in the Indian Ocean. By the time they get to Japan, they are uh, slow because iron ships tend to accumulate sea life that really slows things down. It kind of um, uh, creates like water turbulence that creates drag. Interesting. Uh, so a, okay. clean, a clean hull can be several knots faster than a than a than an old uh unkempt hull interesting okay 
And then, uh, and then, yeah, I mean, uh, demoralized sailors who have been on the ocean for seven months and all of this stuff. Essentially, uh, the 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 Russian Baltic fleet gets there uh, in 1905, um, and uh, at the Battle of Tsushima, Admiral Togo manages to cross the T on the Russian fleet and utterly obliterates them. Like it is a it is a decisive Japanese victory, and so. Number one, we've got a non-European country defeating a European country. This is all sorts of scandalous at the time. Number two, it's like, oh, okay, this is what a battleship battle looks like. And for observers in Britain especially, they're liking that it looks a lot like a traditional one, right? You have that T-cross, you have a, a line of battle. This is exciting for them. They feel vindicated in their direction. Okay? Ignoring the fact that the whole thing is made possible by some very non-traditional things at the beginning of the war, right? At the attack of Port, in Port Arthur. There's a new class that's commissioned, again, by Fisher, um, known as the Battle Cruiser, which is a combination between a battleship and a cruiser. The thinking being that, honestly, torpedoes have a range of like 2,000 yards now. So if you're within 2,000 yards, torpedoes are a bigger threat than guns. And if you're beyond 2,000 yards, the guns are not accurate. So what's the point of having 12-inch guns on everything? So let's make something that's a little faster, a little harder to hit, a little bit lighter armed, but can actually kind of spin circles around a battleship. This is the class that's probably going to be the most successful in terms of future-proofing. All of this obviously is leading to the First World War, right? We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, though. Essentially, by the outbreak of war, Britain has 29 Dreadnought-class ships. Germany has 17. Uh, so, you know, Britain outstrips them by a, a pretty solid amount. Yeah. In 1913-1914, Britain has started this pivot towards battlecruisers. Germany has started building subs. Like, the, the race has cooled a little bit, but they have a lot of battleships in reserve, right? And then war breaks out, and it turns out that Naval action is almost entirely supportive. So, like, you know, you have British battleships sailing to support uh, in the Dardanelles, like in the in the campaign against the Ottomans for like sea support against land. But like, they're not right. they're, they're fighting like destroyers and stuff, and and kind of third rate destroyers. Um, there is one. There is one battle between battleships in world war one that is worth Just one <laughs> that is worth speaking of it's the battle of jutland in 1916 it takes place between you know may 31st and june 1st it kind of goes overnight partially mm. essentially Tirpitz convinces them to go uh, the, the german navy to go for an attempt to draw out british forces to try and get the ships out of harbor they haven't had access to the north sea or to the atlantic for the entire war up to this point um uh, britain controls it all so they send out some uh really fast battle cruisers to basically draw out british cruisers away from the main force to try and isolate uh, isolate them and kind of pull them into uh the uh the course of the the bigger uh german fleet hoping that right. they can kind of bring down the numbers a little bit uh they were kiting them if we want to keep talking about uh <laughs> they, they drew aggro it's working. It's, it's working for me. It's working. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I have no idea how many people will, will respond in any way to this, but this is, <laughs> this is what's happening. They're kiting them. Um, and it sort of works, but sort of not. I, I mean, it's look, we're not going to get into all the maneuvers on this one as much as I would love to, but there's hours of maneuvers on this one. The British fleet is hampered by poor communication between, uh, the, uh, main admiral, a guy named Jellicoe and his vice admiral, uh, a guy named Admiral Beatty, both of whom will go on to be very important people in the, in the British Navy. Um, but functionally the way it breaks down is there's no really clear outcome. Uh, British lost more ships, uh, twice as many seamen, but the Germans weren't able to break out of the harbor or gain any access to the Atlantic. So generally mm. how it's described as like a, a German tactical uh, victory and a British strategic victory. Okay. Um, it, it's it, it's incredibly unclear and it's incredibly unsatisfying for every side. Let's be real. <laughs> um, Jellicoe managed to cross the, the German T twice uh, and it didn't matter this time, uh, which was highly disappointing for everybody. Like that's supposed to be it, right? That's the maneuver you want to do. That's the, that's the coup de grace. And right. no, not really. This is all really anticlimactic, but that's sort of the point of this story for me, right? Um, the rest of the war is basically just going to be Germany turning to unrestricted submarine warfare, right? Attacking uh, British convoys coming across the Atlantic, that you know, bringing supplies from uh, from Canada, from Newfoundland, uh, from from uh, the U.S. It's part of why the U.S. enters the war, right? Is the is the German sinking of the Lusitania by right. a German U-boat, but I mean, it's not as though they were just indiscriminately sinking civilian vessels. The Lusitania was carrying munitions. Um, most uh, British civilian convoy ships were being armed with like pretty serious uh, weaponry. So like, you know, one side's blurring the lines of like what's acceptable in naval combat. One's blurring the lines of what is a civilian. Things get messy all over the place, right? Well, yeah, this we know mm -hmm. uh, about that period of time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Functionally, there are only three major battles of the Battleship Age. One is uh, the Battle of Tsushima, which we talked about. Um, one is Jutland, which we just touched on. And the third one is uh, it, it was uh, the Battle of the Yellow Sea. Um, we don't even really need to talk about that one, but it was a it was a pitched uh, battle at the beginning of the Russo-Japanese War uh, between battleships, and that's about it. That's what all of this builds to: these massive, uh, heavy, expensive weapons of of mass destruction are are used three functional times. The rest of it is just as Corbett said, right? Like they're used for denial. They're used for uh, they're used for blockade. They're used for the implied threat of violence just through their very existence, um, rather than in these Nelsonian pitched battles. Right. So what happens to all these boats <laughs> after, that's, you know? no, that's a great question. So, um, at the end of world war one, the, well, the allied powers were basically hoping to get a piece of that, german 17 dreadnought class battleship action right uh the majority of them the uh the german commander scuttled before right right before the end of the war i see uh oh the french were so mad 
they were <laughs> they were so mad well those things are valuable like on top of yeah. on top of everything else they just they're worth a lot of money and they kind of had their eyes on them yeah um it would have been well i mean you know that's that's how britain kicks off the the 19th century is adding uh an entire you know 21 uh ships uh, uh from the uh from the french fleet to their own and uh, you know basically doubles it overnight it's a good way to get ships yeah, yeah. it's it's actually really interesting the the um the shift to uh iron hulls and the focus on sinking the enemy is really a late 19th century thing before that it's really about taking prizes right uh, right. It's probably a term you've heard before. It's not just about piracy. That's also a, a, a an enshrined part of, you know, state navies. The rank that you attain on a Royal Navy ship determines the amount of, like, the percentage of the spoils of capturing an enemy ship. It's assumed right. that you're going to capture it. Um, so it's it's very it's very very recent that we're all about sinking the enemy ships. Um, but yeah, so the, the German fleet does not get added to anybody else's, but they are also left with, uh, not a single battleship at the end. And of course the, the treaty of Versailles, uh, means that they're not permitted to build any new battleships. Um, now obviously that's going to get pushed, uh, as we move into the 1930s as the, as the Hmm. Nazis start, uh, really stepping on, uh, you know, the, well, every part of the Treaty of Versailles. But interestingly enough, the, the definition of battleship is basically anything bo- or anything above 10,000 tons of displacement. And um, the way that they start getting around this is uh, by building what is known in the British press as pocket battleships, which are ships that are just below 10,000 tons, but they have battleship size uh, uh, armor and uh, guns on them. Right. Um, eventually, they'll they'll abandon that and they'll build just just enormous battleships. The, the Bismarck is one that comes to mind. But um, right. for everybody else who is in Germany, uh, there's something called the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922, and it's an attempt to prevent any future arms races. So basically, uh, U.S., U.K., Japan, France, and Italy all sign on to this thing in an attempt to keep things from spiraling out of control again. And basically, the five of these have agreed to keep their relative naval strengths in essentially three tiers so um for every five uh u.s ships there can be five uh british ships for every five of those there can be three japanese ships and for those uh numbers there can be 1.75 i believe uh french or italian ships so it kind of sets them into uh tiers but they they agree to numbers of ship by tonnage and things like that and so it's interesting sort of a, why do some nations get a smaller allotment of ships oh well i mean who won the war more right is is sort of what that ends up coming uh, oh, down I, to i i see this wasn't meant to be a fair deal it's like <laughs> no no not at all i mean you know it's it's funny britain britain it's its largest territorial uh, holding just after World War One. It's also at its most precarious. It's extremely overstretched uh, in its economy, right? It spent all this money on ships, and then it prosecuted, uh, you know, just just a horrendous war. Uh, really, the first uh, large scale industrial war uh, with total mobilization. Uh, it ruined the British economy um, trying to maintain that level. And so, this is, if anything, on the British part, a concession to these other nations. Right, but it's still like an attempt to keep something of a continuance of the 19th century's order, 
right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, under under the former two power rule, you know, every time uh, the U.S. has five and and Japan has three, uh, Britain should have eight. So they're seeing this as a concession. They're just matching the U.S. But overall, they're also looking to prevent themselves from spending themselves into a bad position again over over poor naval policy. Yeah. The other thing is World War One brings the advent of the warplane. Um, and the writing is on the wall very quickly in terms of what this is going to do for naval power. Like very quickly. So first flight is in 1903. When here's another one I want you to take a guess at the year because it's ridiculous. When do you think it was the first time that somebody launched a plane off of uh, the deck of a, a military ship? First time that happened? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I imagine planes would have had to be around for a little while. Uh, uh, I don't know. Let's go with uh, I'm going to guess 1935. 1910. Somebody what? did it within seven years. So <laughs> That's bold. Certain certain powers were already building aircraft carriers in World War One. Like Japan okay. had an aircraft carrier in World War One. All right. Um, now early ones would be launched off a ship, land on the land. Um, the first ship landing successfully tested was in 1917, though. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah, moving fast on that. Yeah. So that that Washington Naval Treaty. Uh, you know, it's putting these restrictions on on battleships. Uh, they tried putting restrictions on submarines. The French didn't really go for it. They just ended up with a limited tonnage. But like, everybody's already eyeing aircraft carriers, right? That's the future, right. and everybody sort of knows it. And I mean, that's the direction naval war goes. You know, in in World War II, um, the well i mean pearl harbor five of eight uh u.s battleships are sank are sunk uh in the harbor during that attack but all the aircraft carriers were out right um now a lot of that is also dependent on on just underestimation of the u.s's uh just insane uh industrial output right the 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 they, they turned around a new navy in basically 18 months like it was wild um, but you know, the usefulness of air power in naval combat and in, in sort of, uh, mixed purpose combat. So launching bombers off of a, an aircraft carrier and sending them inland, like you're no longer restricted to the range of your battleships guns. You're restricted to the range of a plane that you can carry. And by 1942 with the battle of Midway, um midway's it's significant for a number of reasons it's a really interesting point in the war but one of the things that's most significant about it is it's the first naval battle in which neither side spotted another ship directly the entire battle is fought by uh using spotter planes for range finding um because they're far enough that like the curvature of the earth is a problem uh and Planes from uh, one side launching and bombing ships on the other side or dropping torpedoes into the water or, you know, like there's there's lots of options there. But the two so fleets, many things you can do now. But the, but the two fleets never see each other. Like huh. they never have visual contact, not directly, at least. Um, right. You know, uh, we, we could keep going. I would love to keep going. I was really planning on stopping really with the with the Washington Naval Treaty because that's the <laughs> that's the that's the end of the era of the of the battleship, really. Right. 
Um, right. you're, you're looking at aircraft carriers from here on out. Um, and I mean, post-World War II, uh, you know, ICBMs being launched from submarines, being launched from silos, uh, longer range aircraft. Like it, it, the, the role of the Navy takes a, a bit of a step back. I don't know that it's ever going to go away. It's still certainly a relevant thing today. But that's the moment where this hundred years that Britain spends, you know, going from Nelson to Dreadnought, it kind of all just fizzles out in World War One. It ends up coming to nothing. And I think it's a really interesting lesson in expectation and in direction of national spending to, to a certain extent and to a lack of direct experience, you know? Yeah. Um, things like this can turn on their heads so easily in history, and it's, it's such a fantastic example of it. Those, the, the millions and millions and millions of pounds that were spent in the 19th century pounds, not today's pounds, um, on these battleships is, is insane. Like, you know, a, a Dreadnought itself, it was just short of 2 million pounds in 1905. Uh, I'm not sure what that is exactly today, but like it was, they're, they're expensive endeavors and, you know, beat by what a a couple of guys on a torpedo boat that's fast enough, right? (laughs) Like it's not, it's not exactly like one of those like inflatable, uh, one of those called Zephyrs or whatever, but it's like not far off. Like swift boats today are not like, those are the spiritual successors of, of torpedo boats, right? Move fast, be hard to hit, you know. Cause a lot of damage uh, on a big thing in a really small place that, that does the job. Yeah. So anyway, that that is all the stuff that I wanted to say about naval history today. I could go, I could go on for hours. Uh, so thank you for, thank you for humoring me with with this topic. I really appreciate it. Um, Absolutely, this was uh, very enjoyable. Uh, I don't know much about it. I think. Uh, most of what I knew about naval battles beforehand was probably from from video games, which we've which we've referenced uh-huh. many times. Uh, you know, playing playing an RTS back in the day, and I I remember building cruisers mm-hmm. and destroyers, and now I know a little bit more about what they are and why they exist. <laughs> but, but why they're different? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I feel like this is one of those things where you can easily go down a rabbit hole, and many many people have. This is not anything remotely unique to me. I, I understand that I'm typifying myself as a type of guy by even <laughs> mentioning any of this stuff right but like it's it's for a reason there's a there's a time not that long ago where this is critical not just like from a military standpoint but from like a policy standpoint right like it is it is, it is significantly meaningful to uh entire nations in, in terms of like the choices they make for their navy which direction that nation goes forward in the world and the fact that it's not quite as big a deal that, you know, having a battleship is essentially like a prestige thing now. I don't know. That's, that's wild to me. That, that really, that really fascinates me. So anyway, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. I certainly did. (laughs) I I really love talking about this. I hope you, uh, I hope you learned a little bit about, uh, I don't know, filled in a couple of gaps, uh, beyond just, just rts's and uh <laughs> you definitely did yeah yeah i don't know uh, final impressions last words anything you want to you want to reflect on yeah uh it's really interesting to me what the advent of 
newer technologies and just the the speed at which technology has changed in the last 150 years what that does to well everything but in this case very specifically the concept of of warfare and you know it started by taking these these giant machines uh and uh, bringing them to this apex of being this ultimate form of war to really very very shortly afterwards becoming practically irrelevant uh uh you know it makes you wonder about about you know what we still have to discover in 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 that in that department yeah especially with the torpedo boats uh i kept thinking about the you know that one meme format which will be like who would win in a fight like you know what uh it'll, it'll always be like one one giant whatever and then like one small boy and it'll just be like I don't know. You'll do like David and Goliath, and it'll be like one one giant warrior and like one boy with a slingshot. Right. Um, you know, yeah. I keep keep thinking about that in terms of like a dreadnought and then like I, I don't know <laughs> twenty guys on a torpedo boat. But like that's that's essentially what we're looking at at that point, right? Is this idea of like surely this tiny thing couldn't? Well, yeah, they kind of can though. Yeah, they kind of they kind of can though, and and it becomes a real <laughs> problem for. Uh, for these large powers, they kind of spend themselves into um, into paralysis. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's um, it's just one more place where I think looking at the the history of these things can can be at least um, a bit of a warning for uh, more modern concerns. And I think that's always worth looking at. For sure. All right. Well, we've gone on long enough about boats. Uh, so let's, uh, let's leave it there. Uh, thank you once more for, for coming on. It's always a, a pleasure having you. Thanks so much for having me. Battleships weren't irrelevant after the Washington Treaty. They continue to play a vital part in the navies of the Second World War, but their symbolic role, the heart of the fleet, the new flagship, the marker of a truly world-class power, that aspect wouldn't survive contact with aircraft carriers and nuclear weapons, ICBMs, and stealth bombers. And while it would have been impossible to know at the time, the massive quantities of money spent in the British and German naval arms race did little more than lead to one false start of a battle, a British fleet paralyzed by the mere existence of a German fleet sitting in port to the detriment of action in the Pacific and Mediterranean, and the comfort of the many members of the Admiralty who had not yet managed to commit Lord Nelson to history. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I said that uh, the Battle of Midway was the first battle in which two fleets did not spot each other directly, instead engaging uh, via aircraft. That honor actually goes to the earlier, but somewhat less well-known, Battle of the Coral Sea. This false fact about Midway is a popular one, and one that I was actually taught in school, and I didn't think to confirm it until after recording. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.